Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I woke up to her staring at me. I think some part of me, some deep instinct, had felt her gaze even though she was silent and almost invisible in the darkened corner of my bedroom. I remember having a moment of confusion as I wondered if I was dreaming or if I was awake, if I was seeing things. But no, she was there. A young woman in her late 20s or early 30s, dressed in jean shorts and a purple t-shirt, chin-length blonde hair framing a face of hard angles and deep shadows. I sat up with a start, but she didn't move a muscle. Miss? Hello? No response. I felt my fear and my anger begin to grow. Ma'am, why are you in my house? Are you high or something? She moved then, the motion after such stillness making her seem like a statue come to life. Leaning forward, I saw more of her face. She was crying. I wish. No, I'm fully here. For now. I felt my anger cooling a bit. Maybe she was a junkie, but maybe she was just confused or needed help. Lady, did someone hurt you or did you fall or something? You're in my house and I don't know you. The woman gave a short and bitter laugh. (laughs) So you say. She wasn't acting violent or even clearly crazy, but this was already past the threshold of weirdness that I felt I should be dealing with without calling the cops. I eased my hand over to the nightstand where my phone was charging. Look, I don't know what's going on, but I'm kind of freaked out. If you don't go, I'm going to call 911 and then let them figure this out, okay? Do you want to go, or do you want me to call? She shrugged. I could see her shirt said... Be the change, not the doll hair. The fuck did that... I can't leave. They won't let me. It's part of a game. What game? What are you talking about? I was already punching 911 as I spoke, half asking the question just to stall her. She clearly had something fucked up in the head, and I really don't want to get stabbed because I waited too long to call for help. The woman just stared at me as I talked to 911, and it was only when I finished the initial details to the dispatcher that she interrupted. Please don't let them take me. I couldn't help but pull the phone away from my ear as I focused on her again. I knew she had to be crazy, a paranoid schizo or something, but the raw sadness and fear in her voice made me doubt myself. It was stupid. Crazy people get very genuinely upset about their delusions all the time. It doesn't make them real, but... Something about this woman made me want to believe her. To help her. Don't let 
Who take you? What are you talking about? She leaned forward more, but stopped when she saw me slightly recoil. When the cops arrive, they're not really going to be cops. They'll send two men. They'll look like twins. They'll even tell you a joke about how they're probably the only twin cops in the world. But they aren't cops. And they aren't taking me to jail or to a hospital or whatever. I heard the dispatcher's voice still talking into the phone, and I surprised myself by hanging up on them. I kept studying this strange woman sitting in front of me. Where do they take you, then? Her tears had slowed down before, but I saw new tracks glistening down her cheeks as she looked away for a moment. They take me to this place they call the farm, though I don't know what it really is. It's very big and very remote, but that's what they do most nights. They take me to that place. She swallowed and wiped at her eyes. Sometimes they can't wait. They just get a little ways from here and pull over. Get me out and drag me into the woods. Tear me apart. I felt my eyes going wide. Are, are you saying they... Did someone rape you? She gave another short, sad laugh as she shook her head. <laughs> no. I said they tear me apart. Bite me. Eat me. On the nights that they lose control. The other times, most of the time, they carry me to the farm. And that's so much worse. I slid off the bed, my stomach sour with fear. I'd made a mistake not getting away from her sooner, not staying on the line with 911. She was clearly insane, and might be dangerous, and I was trapped in here with her. Trying to sound calm, I eased toward the door as I kept talking. I, uh... I see. You look pretty good for someone who's been eaten, or whatever. The woman grimaced as she stood up. Don't you think I know that, John? I can't explain it. I don't know how or why they're doing it, but every night, when things finally go dark, I wake back up here with you. Not a mark on me and dressed like it's the first night. I think I was living the first night over and over, but it's not always the same. You're not always the same. So I have to be coming back every night. She gave a shudder. And then they come and take me again. She had taken a couple steps toward me, and I avoided her touch as I stepped out into the hallway. Look, I think you're just confused or sleepwalking, maybe. I don't know how you know my name, but maybe we met once and now I'm in some weird dream you've had? Either way. The woman stopped in the doorway inside. I don't know why I keep trying. You never believe me. You never remember. There was a knock at the front door. Her face crumpled as she looked in its direction. And now it's too late. I almost reached out for her, trying to comfort her. I wanted her to know I was on her side, whatever side that was, and I was going to try and help her. But then the knock came again. This time harder and more insistent. I... I'm sorry. Look, let's just talk to them. See if they can help, okay? 
She just stared bleakly as I backed down the hall to the living room and out to the front foyer. Just let me answer the door. I'm not going to let anyone hurt you. The words sounded stupid and hollow as I said them, but then I reminded myself that what the woman was saying was insane. No one was trying to hurt her, and I needed her out of my house. So I opened the door and saw a pair of twins in police uniforms smiling at me. Evening, sir. We've got a 911 call at this residence. The one on the right spoke while the left twin just nodded and kept smiling. I glanced back and saw that the woman wasn't in the doorway of the bedroom anymore. Shit, where'd she gone? Uh, yeah. I, well... There was a woman in my house. I woke up and she was in my bedroom. I've never met her before. The right twin looked at the left with a smirk. We've heard of that one before, eh, Chip? Chip looked back at the right twin with a knowing wink. Indeed we have, Chomp. I blinked. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I'm not trying to be rude, but did you just say his name is Chomp? Chomp turned back to give me a squinting perusal. He said, Champ. My name is Champ. Have you been drinking tonight, sir? As I went to answer, Champ clicked a flashlight on his shoulder and shined it in my face. You can be honest with us, sir. Have you hurt that girl? I raised my hands to block the light, and suddenly Chomp, or Champ, was gently pushing me against the doorframe. Sir, please keep your hands lowered. We don't want any trouble, and I'm sure you don't either. Fighting down the new confusion and irritation, I shook my head. I don't. I just want her out and all of you gone. Champ nodded. Good. Chip, go secure the interior while I keep an eye on our friend. See if you can find this lady he claims not to know. <laughs> he chuckled again, his good humor seemingly back. Although I will say, calling the cops is hell of a way to end a night of romance. Chip shot past us into the house, and I found myself ignoring Champ's comments to call after the other twin. Please go easy with her. She's really upset and confused. Champ stepped back and gave another nasty chuckle as I looked down the hall. Chip had done a cursory look around the living room and dining room, but then he bypassed the rest and went straight to the dark door leading into my bedroom. The inky black seemed to swallow him as he entered. Only a few seconds later, I heard the woman screaming. I started to go back in, and Champ lightly put his hand on the back of my chest. Hold tight, Spore. My brother can handle her. I went to respond, but then I saw them both emerging from the shadows, Chimp walking her out with her arms behind her back. The twin looked past her to Champ. She was in the closet. The fucking closet. It was a classic. Is she okay? Chip ignored me, but Champ stepped closer as they approached. His breath was hot and strange-smelling as he leaned down to whisper to me. She looks fine as paint to me, Spart. Lucky break for you, huh? We'll have her out of your hair in no time. She called out something, but at the time I didn't understand it. I was more concerned with Champ hurting her as he turned to stop her, but all he did was grip her shoulders and steer her away from me. And within a second, Chip had caught up from behind, and they were carrying her out to the patrol car. I trailed behind, 
somehow more scared and worried now than I had been all night. I bet you've never been visited by twin cops before, eh? Champ's eyes twinkled in the sodium street lamp as he closed the woman into the back passenger compartment. Why, I bet we're the only pair in the country. Maybe the world. I nodded numbly. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I guess so. He watched me for a moment before glancing down at the window where the woman was staring out at me. I guess that makes you double lucky tonight. I forced myself to look away from her gaze and caught Chip's eye on the far side of the car. Where are you taking her? Just to the local jail or where? Chip looked at Champ who was grinning at me again. Why sure, that's exactly where we're going. Assuming we don't stop for some grub on the way. He shot a glance at Chip. What do you think, brother? I know we'll get in trouble, but, hell, sometimes the appetites rule, eh? He looked back at me, his face serious now. Don't worry, sir. We'll take good care of her. You have a good rest of your evening. I wanted to ask more, but they were already getting in the car and driving away. The last thing I saw was her looking at me through the back of the glass as they faded into the night. I felt jittery and unsatisfied as I walked back inside and shut the door. What had she been saying? Something about the owl? What had it been? Ask the owls if I'm telling the truth. Oh, fuck. When I moved into this house six years ago, I found out it had a security camera covering the front and backyards. Both feeds went to a little computer monitor in the man cave rumpus room basement, as well as to a hard drive that kept seven days backup. The cameras were probably 10 or 15 years old, and I found the whole setup slightly creepy, but I'd never gotten rid of it. It was already installed and running, and it could come in handy if someone ever tried to break in or mess with my car. But that had never happened, and over the years, I rarely thought about it unless someone commented on one of the fake owls, one sitting on a post in the backyard and the other in a tree next to the driveway. When someone did comment, I would always get embarrassed and explain that it wasn't a decorating choice. It was what the previous owner had set up to hide the security cameras. My hand was numb as I gripped the knob to the basement door. I half expected and hoped that I'd check the camera's computer and find that it had died in the last few months without me knowing, but... No. It was humming right along, and after re-familiarizing myself with the software, I was able to watch my strange encounter with the twin police officers a few minutes earlier. Trembling slightly, I scrubbed back to the night before. Oh god. At 1.32 a.m. the night before, a patrol car had pulled up. The two men that looked like the twins got out and went up to the front door. They knocked waited for someone to answer. And then I opened the door. A panicked buzzing began to build in my ears as I double-checked the day and time. No, it wasn't a mistake. It really was from the night before. I even remembered wearing that t-shirt to bed that night. But I was the only thing that was different. The girl they pulled from the house was the same, if less defiant that time. She walked somberly to the patrol car, and though the video was black and white, I could see enough to guess that it was the same shirt and shorts she'd been wearing tonight. I had reached for my phone to call... Who? 
911, my family across the country, George and Ruby, who could I call that wouldn't think I was crazy as I thought the woman was? I need more proof. So I went back another night, and then another. I went back five nights, and with slight variations, the same thing happened every single time. How is this possible? Trembling, I started to call 911 again. I needed to tell someone, and I needed to make sure that woman was really okay. That they hadn't... Well, that she had gotten somewhere safe. And then I woke up in my bed. I wasn't particularly worried or stressed out about anything. I had a few hours of work to do during the day, but that night I was going with George and Ruby to an exclusive interactive adventure I'd gotten invited to online. It was called The True Horror Movie Experience. It was described as a multi-night tailor-made journey through the terror and madness. It sounded weird and awesome, and I'd been looking forward to it, well, for a long time. At the time, I didn't remember anything from the night before. I had no memories of the strange woman in my room, the men who came and took her, or what the owl showed me after they were gone. I'm telling you this so you can understand that I didn't know. Despite everything that had happened, everything that she had tried to warn me, to save us all, none of it mattered because I had taken it all away. Until they gave it back. Peace by bloody peace. We went to a plain, nondescript building on the edge of town. It was nestled in the middle of a bland office park, and if the place had been busy earlier in the day, it was pretty much empty by 4 o'clock on a Saturday. I pulled into a parking space as George whistled in my ear from the back seat. <whistles> wow, <laughs> this place looks super reputable. I have no bad feelings about this at all. I saw Ruby shoot him a dark look from beside me. It had been six months since they'd stopped their brief dating experiment, and while things were still weird at times, I was relieved to see they were acting more like their old selves again. That was one of the reasons I'd wanted them both to come, after all. I was tired of having them bail on plans as soon as they found out the other was going to be there. Besides, it's going to be really cool, guys. I mean, the invite was kind of random, but I checked them out online. Lots of rave reviews. They are apparently at the cutting edge of doing these interactive adventure things. Not like that bullshit we went to last year in New York where people just shove you around and scream in your face. I looked to Ruby for support and she nodded, but her expression was still uncertain as she glanced around the parking lot. George leaned up to look at the building we were parked at. Fuck, I hope not. I almost punched that one dude that got... well that disrespected you. I watched in the rear view as he glanced awkwardly at Ruby, who gave him a quick smile and nod. Blushing slightly, he opened his door. Okay, let's see if this place is even open. I started to open the door when Ruby touched my arm. I'm not trying to be a downer, but are you sure about this? He's not wrong about it looking sketchy. Sighing, I nodded. I know. But let's make sure this is the right address, and if it is, we can check out how it looks inside. I grinned. If any of us get a bad vibe, the safe word is penguin. We'll bail. 
I opened the door and looked out at George. Hey, dickhead, the safe word is penguin. His eyes widened. Fuck, we need safe words? I tried to contain some of my nervous excitement as we filled out our questionnaires. This place was fucking awesome. We'd went to the front door, found it unlocked, and entered into a small, plain-looking hobby that contained a sofa, two chairs, and a bored-looking receptionist behind a desk. After we gave them our names, we were immediately escorted through another door into the real office. It was like something out of a movie. Everything was brightly lit and clean, and with well-dressed people moving to and fro across a large atrium that looked too large and too grand to belong in the office building, either aesthetically or physically. A young woman holding a tablet approached us and introduced herself as Swan. She said she'd been our guide and liaison during our adventure, and after we filled out our questionnaires and signed our liability waivers, she'd get started on a brief orientation before the fun began. I glanced at George and Ruby and saw they were as awestruck as I was, Grinning, I nodded and told her to lead on. I was working on what had to be the tenth page of the longest form I'd filled out when George spoke up beside me. So, why us? Or, well, why John? How'd he get picked for... He gestured around at the softly backlit walls and clearly expensive furniture of the office we were sitting in. All this. Swan smiled. We've been doing promotions and testing like this for a number of years in various places around the world, utilizing collected internet search and expenditure data in conjunction with our own witch's brew of algorithms. We send out invitations to likely candidates we believe would be interested in what we offer and that can provide useful feedback. It was Ruby's turn to ask a question now. Yeah, but all this in a no offense. Shitty little office park with no sign-ups? And John, you had to pay what? Uh, a hundred bucks per person, I muttered, glancing between Ruby and Swan with increasing nervousness. It wasn't that the questions weren't valid, but I had a gnawing fear that if we asked too many, they would just take away our clipboard and tell us to leave. Instead, Swan just nodded at me before looking back to Ruby. Ruby was frowning slightly. A hundred bucks per for what? A super exclusive multi-night tailored horror experience? Shit, we paid more than that last year to get shoved around in a warehouse while the dude tried to grab my tits. The girl chuckled. <laughs> I understand, but what you must realize is that the money isn't of really any consequence. We only charge so we get serious applicants. Weed out the kids and the looky-loos. Her cheek twitched slightly. We're still in the testing and research phase for this now, so the work is being done for future profitability and not immediate significant recompense. I caught Ruby's eye. Look, it's legit and cool so far, right? She nodded slowly. It does, but it's just... No, you're right. Ruby looked back at Swan and gestured at her with her pen. But you better not harvest our organs or some shit. Swan laughed again. <laughs> no, nothing as dramatic as all that. Congratulations for being selected to participate in the true horror movie experience. This is your orientation for night one. 
The blue pill you've just been given contains an organic and wholly safe combination of natural ingredients that will heighten your creativity and your suggestibility for the next few hours. It is an essential part of your first evening and must be taken prior to leaving for the event site. This is a mandatory element of the experience, but rest assured it has been tested. It has no negative or permanent side effects and will not render you unconscious or unable to control your body. Once you take the pill, please put the provided black hood on and secure it comfortably at the neck. Someone will be by to collect you and take you to the event site. To my surprise, neither George nor Ruby argued about the pill, and seeing them both take it, I took my own. It wasn't until I was in the muted black world of the hood that I heard George speaking beside me again. So, um, are you going to tell us anything else? Any rules or... Swan's voice was higher and more distant this time when she cut in. Oh, no. Uh, there are no rules. There was more tension when George spoke again. No rules? Like, like you mean like the actors are trained to keep us safe? I mean, there had to be some kind, right? There was no answer. Fuck, it won't start. I snickered at George. <laughs> yeah, funny. Best cut it out before Ruby gets in. She's in no mood after that stupid shit you pulled. He glared at me. I'm not joking. Watch. I saw him turn the ignition key, but the car didn't start or even make any complaining noises. It's fucking dead, man. Ruby opened the back door and got in. What's the holdup? Crank that AC. It's hot as shit out here. She saw my expression and raised an eyebrow. What's wrong? George can't get it to crank. It doesn't do anything when he tries. She rolled her eyes. Fuck. This is just the best fucking day ever. George started to apologize again and she raised a finger. No, don't even start. I'm hot, my leg hurts, and I know you're sorry I fell, but if you try to apologize again right now, I'm going to be shitty to you. So just stop. George frowned sadly and tried the key again. Still nothing. Car service, then? John, you've got it on your insurance, right? I nodded. Yeah, but no signal out here. <laughs> I laughed dryly. You're the one that wouldn't go out here for a nature hike. Ruby flipped me off as she checked her phone. Me neither. George? He shook his head before getting out suddenly to go look under the hood. When he was gone, I looked back at her. Go easy on him, okay? You know he likes you, and it killed him that you fell when he tried to jump scare you on the trail. She sighed. I know, but it was stupid. He just needs to think before he does shit. I nodded. Yeah, but he just gets excited about stuff. I mean, you know how he is. He's like a big kid sometimes. And... Oh shit, someone's coming. But who would do something like that? I'm no mechanic, but that engine was torn to shit. Errol glanced over where George was, squeezed in next to him on the pickup bench's seat. Ruby had opted to sit in the bed, so I was on the other side of George, getting to breathe in the aroma of old tobacco and stale wheat that filled up the cab. When our backwoods savior spoke, a sweetly decaying scent pushed its way past the others. Kids, most like. They think it's fucking funny. Little shits come from the other side of the river. 
The town is only a few miles that away past the bend, and they come out camping, earning badges, or whatever it is they do. What they wind up doing mostly is raising hail and causing some damage to property. His light green eyes were back on the road now. Sometimes I catch one of them. When he had first drove up and offered to help, I had noticed that Errol seemed both old and young, especially around the eyes. It was more than just looking tired. He looked used up somehow. Spent. But not now. Now his face was almost glowing as he smiled at some unknown memory. Catch and correct him. Correct him good and proper. Shifting uncomfortably, I decided to change the subject before George asked another question. Um, this town. Is that where we're going? Maybe we can get phone service there, or at least a tow. Errol licked his lips, but didn't look my way. No, I have a line you can use at the house. It's closer, and you won't find those proper town folk wanting much truck with you come rolling into town with me. Our farm isn't too far now. We'll have you fixed up soon enough. I felt my stomach clenching. This wasn't right. I didn't want to piss the guy off, but I'd seen enough movies to know that this was going to end with us butchered in his basement. The guy was probably a harmless good Samaritan, but was it worth the risk? Fuck no, it wasn't. Uh, actually, I, I, I know it's a hassle, but if you don't mind, take us up to town, okay? It'll be easier to get help there, and we'll be out of your hair quicker, too. Errol cut his eyes towards me. You taking liberties with my good nature, boy? I raised an eyebrow. What? I don't I don't know what you mean. I mean to say that I'm already helping you. Now you decided my help ain't good enough. Want to go crawl to the city folk, who I've already told you ain't going to help you for shit. Or don't you trust my word? George raised his hands. Hey, and nobody's saying that, man. We appreciate it. We just need to get to town. That's cool with you. You said it's pretty close anyway, right? Errol slammed on the brakes and the trunk lurched to a squealing halt. Get out. I put my hand on the door handle, but George was already protesting. Fuck, man, chill out. We, we need the ride, okay? The other man had been staring out at the road, but now he swung his gaze around to George, his lips skinned back and his teeth only a couple of inches from George's face as he snarled. I said get out of my fucking truck, shitbird. You move, or I'll by God move you. I yanked the door open and grabbed George's arm. Let's go. Now. I glanced past him to Arrow. We meant no disrespect. Thanks for carrying us this far. George frowned at me. No, fuck that. I gripped his wrist and pulled harder. Shut up and get out. We're going. Ruby had heard enough to already be out of the truck bed, and I saw George glance past me at her before nodding. He barely had a foot on the ground before Errol peeled off, causing George to stumble against me with a curse. Fucking Red could have run me over. I looked at him and shook my head. You were being a dick, and he was being creepy as fuck. We're better... I looked at him and shook my head. You were being a dick, and he was creepy as fuck. We're better... Look, he's stopping again. I glanced at Ruby before following her gaze up the hill. At its summit, Errol had stopped the truck. Maybe he was reconsidering kicking us out after all. Well, too fucking bad. 
Look, if he comes back and offers us rides again, we say no. I do not trust that fucker. Ruby nodded. I agree. It was already looking like the start of a slasher movie. George looked funny and then nodded with a laugh. She smiled at him, but it fell away as she glanced back up the hill. He's turning around. I was already preparing a polite refusal in case he asked to give us a ride again, but the thought faded as I saw him coming back. He was weaving back and forth, and he was driving way too fast if he was going to stop or talk to us, but it didn't look like he was going to go past, either. It looked like he was aimed right for us. Fuck! Run! I turned and grabbed Ruby's arm, starting down the steep shoulder toward the nearby tree line. I looked back and saw that George was only a few feet behind, but as I watched, he stumbled and fell. I nearly turned to go back for him, but the truck was too close and I knew I'd never make it. So instead, I plunged into the trees with Ruby. Where's George? Where is he? I shook my head as we pushed further into the trees. He fell. Uh, the truck was coming. I, I, I didn't see him get hit. I, I don't know what happened. She stopped and pulled away. We have to go back and get him. Nodding, I looked around. We were at least 30 feet into thick trees now. Arrow might come in, but his truck wouldn't make it very far. I know, but we have to be careful. Let's go down some and then cut back toward the road. See if we see him. Ruby headed off without another word, and we made good time backtracking parallel to the road before cutting back toward the shoulder. When we got to the edge of trees, I could see the spot where George had fallen. There was no sign of him, Errol, or the truck now. Shit, shit, shit. He might have taken him. We have to find him. Ruby's eyes were wide now, her expression matching the guilt and fear and worry that was churning in my own belly. I gave her a quick hug as she pulled out her phone. Still no signal on hers or mine. We debated going back to the car, but what was the point? It still wouldn't run, and George had the keys. We decided to keep going along the edge of the woods, following the road until we found a sign or someone to help or get a signal back. As we started walking, I realized how low the sun in the sky was now. It would be dark soon. Ruby's hand was sweaty in my own as we stepped into the cornfield. It was the first sign of life or people we had seen in over an hour of walking, and while we both knew there was a chance this was Errol's place, we had to take the risk. It could be that the distant lights we saw across the field belonged to a nice family sitting down to dinner, or at least someone halfway normal that would let us use their phone. The air was cold as we passed between the green rows of corn, and with each breath I took in a spiky, earthy scent that made my eyes water. Suddenly Ruby stopped as her grip on my hand tightened. Did you hear something? Ruby's voice was low and strained, and in the moonlight, I could see how tired and scared she was. I thought I heard something behind us. We both sat silent for several moments, but all I heard was the light rustling of the stalks in the evening breeze that had picked up as we made our way through the corn. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I finally shook my head. I don't hear anything other than the wind. She listened another couple of seconds, and then we started back to walking. The field sloped downward in the direction we were headed, making it harder to get a clear view of what was in front of us until we were almost out of the field. When we reached the edge, I felt some relief to a large farmhouse come to view. It was slightly run down, but there were lights on inside and no indications of anything strange or ominous. I looked around for any signs of Errol, but there was no one visible outside or through the windows we could see, and the only car outside was an old Crown Victoria. We broke from the corn at a slow run, warily glancing in every direction as we made our way to the front porch and knocked on the door. There was no answer. We knocked again. Then we called out while knocking a third time, letting them know that we had an emergency and just needed a phone. Still... Nothing. Maybe no one was home, or maybe they just weren't going to come to the door when a stranger was banging on it at night. Either way, we needed to get inside. I started looking around for something to break a window when a thought occurred to me. Reaching out, I tried the doorknob and found that it turned easily. I glanced back at Ruby, who shrugged and gave me a shooing gesture to go on in. I called out again as we answered, saying that we were stepping inside if anyone was there, but we only needed to use the phone to call for help, to please not be scared or shoot us. Like before, there was no response. Empty or not, we just needed to hurry. For our sakes, and for George's. The house was decorated like I would expect an old farmhouse to be decorated. Plain, wood furniture, decorations that my mother would call country, and... No phones. We moved from the front hall through a living room and dining room before coming to a large kitchen with a modern stove on one end and an old iron wood-burning stove on the other. We looked on all the counters and walls, but there was no sign of a phone or even a phone jack. We went back to the front hall, this time going to the right instead of the left. It was a parlor or study of some kind, and while there was an old television in one corner, there was no sign of any phone there either. I was looking along the baseboards for a phone line when Ruby spoke, her voice trembling slightly. There's... there's someone out there. I stood up and saw she was looking out the parlor window. Out in the yard? Maybe it's the owner. We can... No, not in the yard, across the field, on the far side, I see fire, they're lighting something on fire. I went to stand beside her, and at first I didn't see anything, but then a flicker of orange caught my eye in the darkness. What the fuck? The flame grew bigger, and my first thought was that someone had started a bonfire over there, not far from where we had gone to the corn just a few minutes earlier. My heart began to pound faster. What if it was Errol, still hunting us? And why would anyone... But wait. 
wasn't a bonfire. It was a person. Someone had set a person on fire. Oh god, it's George! They're burning George! Ruby started to move toward the front door and I grabbed her. She was crying now and it took all my strength to keep hold of her as she struggled. Let me fucking go! We have to help him! My hands were shaking as I held on to her. We don't know that. It's too far away. It could be a dummy for all we know and... If it is George... It's too late to help him anyway. She lowered her head and began to cry harder. Looking back to the window, I saw that it wasn't a dummy after all. It was moving. More than moving, the blazing figure was walking forward, stepping into the corn. My hands fell from Ruby's arms. That didn't make sense. How could someone walk when they were being burned alive? Ruby was watching beside me now. What? They're walking toward the house? How, how, how the hell are they still alive? Oh god, they're coming this way! Her voice was deep with sadness, but that was being overtaken by a gnawing cord of fear. They, they're fucking running this way! She was right. The burning figure was silently running through the field, leaving a firing path of burning corn behind it as it raced toward the house. None of it should be possible. None of it made any sense, but as I saw its orange glow approaching. None of it should be possible. None of it made any sense, but as I saw its orange glow approaching, a voice deep in my heart told me the truth that my mind wouldn't speak. Possible or not, it was coming for us. Ruby ran back to the front hall and locked the door before sliding a small chest in front of it as well. Remembering a back door in the kitchen, I went and shoved the kitchen table against it before grabbing us each a knife from a nearby butcher's block. We met back in the living room, and I was going to ask if we should go upstairs and look for better weapons, but then it was too late. When the burning thing struck the front door, it began to splinter and char away immediately. The only stairs we knew of were just ten feet from where it was already breaking through, sending streaks of orange light across the faded wallpaper of the front hall. So instead, we began backing away into the dining room. Ruby grabbed my arm. The kitchen. We need to go out the back. Nodding, we turned and run as a flash of orange light painted the interior of the house like it was a new sun. It was inside with us now. We had made it to the kitchen and were pulling the table back from the door when it caught us. I turned as it grabbed Ruby, her flesh beginning to cook immediately as she screamed. Tossing her against the far wall, it reached for me. I ducked back and swiped at it with my knife, but it only bounced ineffectively off its arm as it grabbed my shoulder. The pain was excruciating, and I could feel my eyes already beginning to boil from the heat radiating off of it as I stared into its face. It was George. Or at least it looked like him. Parts of his face were gone already, but he was burning so slowly I could still see enough to know. I wanted to ask him why or how or tell him I was sorry, but the air was already cooking my lungs. But somehow, even in the midst of the flame, he was able to speak. Why did you leave me? I jerked in my chair, squinting at the white lights overhead. What the fuck? Where was I? I looked around and saw Ruby and George were sitting next to me. 
And there was that girl. Swan? What was... I numbly took a cup of water that Swan offered to me. Drink up. The first time there's a bit of cotton mouth. I drink the water even as George threw his to the floor. What the fuck was that? What the fuck was that? Swan chuckled. I take it you had a memorable first adventure. George stood up, towering over the seated woman. Adventure? What the fuck are you talking about, lady? What did you do to us? Frowning, the woman gestured to his chair. Please sit back down. As you can see, you're unharmed. You've just been given the gift of an experience that would kill most people with none of the negative consequences. And this, of course, was just the introduction. The tutorial, if you will. George reluctantly sat down again as she grinned and looked at us each in turn. The future events are bound to be even more stimulating. Ruby crushed her empty cup as she gave a small laugh. Lady, you have to be batshit to think we're ever going to do that again. Or anything like it. I don't know how you did any of it, and I also don't care. I just want to never fucking go through anything like that again. She looked at me. Penguin. Fucking penguin. I nodded. Agreed. It was after midnight before I got into bed. The three of us had been strangely quiet on the way back, though we'd agreed to meet the next day and talk through everything. For now, we were all just too exhausted, and when my head finally hit the pillow, I was fast asleep. Until I woke up a short while later to the woman back in my bedroom. This time she was sitting on my bed, gently shaking me awake. I looked up, first startled and then terrified as the sight of her brought back my memories of the night before. What? John, I need you to just listen to me. We don't have much time before the twins come for me, and we need to talk. John, this is all going to be hard to believe. Maybe impossible. I know I've tried to tell you the truth in the past and it never works, but now that you're in it... Well... I have to try again before it's too late. For both of us. So all I ask is that you listen to the crazy sounding woman waking you up in the middle of the night. Try to really hear what I'm saying and try to remember it. Try to remember me. Yes, I know you. And you know me. At least, when you're not made to forget. It still gets me how well they can control us. How they can control everything. I don't know how they do it, or what they really are, but wait, that may not be true. I think they're tampering with my memory even now, and there are certain things that I feel like I do know, but they're slippery things, laying just outside what I can see or reach to pull into the light. Either way, I can only tell you what I know right now. We know each other because we're married. We've been married for six years, and we've known each other for over eight. Ruby knew me through that god-awful non-profit we both worked at, set the two of us up, and, well, we just clicked from the start. Stop. Please, just stay in here and listen to me. I know how it sounds to you. I know how they fuck with your head, but soon there will be men dressed like cops at our door, and they'll take me away, even though you haven't called 911 yet. 
So just give me this little bit of time with you. Please. Thank you. I... I don't mean to get emotional, but... I remember most everything most of the time. I remember you and our life together, this house, our plans, all of it. I miss you so fucking much, and every night when they're through with me, I wake up back here watching you sleep, wanting to stay here forever. Just so they can take me away again. This has all been going on for a long time. It's hard for me to gauge time exactly, but best I can tell, I went to the true horror movie experience almost four years ago. I know, I know, but I'm telling you the truth. They invited me and I went. Initially, you were going to go with me, but then you came down with a stomach virus at the last minute. I almost stayed home too, but we booked months in advance and were so excited about it. You told me you wanted to make sure at least one of us got to go. I barely remember the first few days of it now. They tweak your perceptions and what you know based on what suits them at the moment. Memories, skills, relationships, they all get shifted around. You get all scrambled, but it doesn't really matter because you're always going to go in the direction they want you to go. Over time, I started to remember more, whether that was due to a building up resistance or them wanting me to know what was going on. In the end, I don't know that it matters. Most days are the same. I mainly sleep during the day, and when I wake up, I'm stuck in some kind of horrific situation where I'm being chased or terrorized or... killed. Then I wake up again here, get drunk back to the farm. At least, most of the time. And then I get to start a new nightmare the next day. I... I don't even know that I'm me anymore. I don't understand how I could be alive or sane, so maybe I'm not, but I do know that you're you. I still feel the same love and excitement and sadness when I see your face, and even if it's too late for me, I have to keep trying to save you. Don't... <sighs> Shit, that's them. See, I told you they'd come whether you called or not. Don't take the pills they give you. They're poison. Venom. Fuck, I, I, I don't know. Don't take them. Try not to go at all. Try to stay awake and remember all this. Remember what's happened already. Remember that you know me and that you love me if you can. But most of all, please, remember not to take the pills and never go near those people again. Run if you have to. Start over. But don't let them trap you the way they have me. I couldn't stand it if you were stuck in hell beside me. Congratulations on being selected to participate in the true horror movie experience. This is your orientation for night two. The yellow pill you've been given is wholly safe and all natural. Taking the pill is a mandatory requirement of participation, but rest assured, its only purpose is to temporarily enhance your imagination and suggestibility. I glanced over at George, who was already popping his pill with a grimace. Giving me a strange look, he leaned closer as Swan continued to talk. Make sure you don't leave me behind, okay? I don't remember last night so well, but I think maybe I got left alone part of the time. Frowning, I gave him a nod. I didn't remember the night before well either, which was strange, but somehow not alarming. 
I vaguely remembered being really tired the night before, and when I got home, I went straight to bed. Even now, I felt tired, and that's after managing to sleep through two alarms up until almost noon. Still, I couldn't imagine that we'd have left him behind, or at least not on purpose. Turning to look at Ruby, I saw she was holding her yellow pill to the light like a jeweler, inspecting a small gym. She looked worn down too, and she'd been nervous and fidgety on the ride over. Had the night before been that exhausting, or was there something else going on? I felt a brief tug in my chest at the thought, a moment of panic without a clear source or reason. Then I realized Swan was asking me if I was ready. I looked back to find that Ruby had taken her pill as well, and they were all waiting on me. Licking my lips, I swallowed my own and chased it with a cup of water. As I pulled on the black hood, I felt a buzz of nervous excitement and anticipation, but it was tainted with a constant low thrum of unease. Something just wasn't... right here. Ruby gestured around at the empty promenade. This is supposed to be a popular amusement park, right? But it's like 10.30 in the morning, we've seen like, what, maybe a dozen people? George nodded absently as he shrugged. It's not peak season, probably. And it only opened at 10. Maybe we just missed the rush. And no people means no lines, right? He pointed to a nearby sign, pointing away to the roller coaster. Let's go try that out. The hunter's blind. We angled in that direction, but I was still thinking about what Ruby had said. Wizard's Folly was a pretty popular amusement park, even if it was out in the middle of nowhere. It had won awards for going back years, and when I bought our tickets, I remember the picture showing every ride and attraction filled with people. Even if this wasn't the peak season, the emptiness of the park seemed strange. But it wasn't just that. It's the way people are acting. I spoke out loud before I realized, glancing around with embarrassment, meeting Ruby's eyes. The people at the ticket booth, the few people we've seen walking around, they all seem off somehow. Like they want to be mean or hostile or something, or just holding it back so they don't get fired. She nodded and pointed a finger toward me as we walked. Exactly. Except it's not just the people that work here. I went over to the water fountain and when we came in, there was this little girl and her dad over there. Not getting water or really doing anything, just standing there like they were waiting for something or didn't know what to do. Just standing and staring. Ruby grimaced slightly at the memory. Until they saw me. Both of their faces changed. It was like you're saying. It was almost like they had to hold themselves back from jumping me. Even the little girl. George let out a sigh. Guys, will you relax? If you don't want to come, you should have said so. But whatever this derpy, creepy shit is, it's killing my fun, man. Can we just check the place out? Ride a couple of rides? If we decide it sucks, we'll leave. Sound fair? I nodded and Ruby grumbled affirmatively. As we made our way down the path to the roller coaster, I kept looking for more people or signs of normalcy. I saw a pair of teenage kids staring sullenly at us from a nearby beach, and then an old woman looking out at sea of empty pens that, at one time in the past or future, had probably been intended as a petting zoo. Now it was just barren and strange, just like everything else around here. See? No lines. George was gesturing toward the empty zigzag of railing leading up to the small building where park attendees were loaded into the hunter's blind. 
Except today, we were the only attendees at the ride, and as we headed up the roller coaster platform, I felt my stomach begin to clench apprehensively. The ride had to be closed or something, or maybe it wasn't safe and they were working on it. Something had to explain why. Step up and pick a seat. Two to a row, please. I jumped slightly as I saw a wan-looking girl step out of the shadows near the edge of the platform. She gestured feebly toward the waiting roller coaster cars while favoring us with a watery look that carried the same underlying malice I'd been feeling since we got there. My eyes began to water as well at the strange minty smell that was wafting toward us from the girl. What was that? A menthol rub? The three of us slowed to a stop and I raised my hand. Hey, um, is this ride okay? I mean, is it open and safe and all? The girl focused on me slightly more, a muscle jumping in her neck so hard I could see it at a distance. Safe? Well, yes, it's safe. As houses? George frowned, first at the girl and then at me. I knew him well enough to see that his stubborn insistence that nothing was wrong was wearing with the obvious wrongness all around him. In the end, his pride won out. Poking me in the ribs with a thick index finger, he scowled, Come on, fucker. George then glanced past me to Ruby as his gaze softened slightly. Let's try to have a good time, yeah? He climbed into the first row of the car and I followed into the second. Ruby had been right behind me, but I looked away for a moment as I pulled my shoulder bars down. That's when she started to scream. I tried to turn, but the padded bar across my chest kept me from moving too much. All I could see at the edge of my vision was that Ruby was being attacked, either by the girl or someone else. I couldn't say for sure. I started pushing against the bars, and ahead of me, George was doing the same while yelling and cursing. They didn't budge. Giving up on pushing them, I started to try and slide out from the side. I made it part way out and was cranking my neck to see what was happening to Ruby when her bloody hand reached out and almost grabbed my arm. I tried to hold on to her wrist, but it was slick and I began to lose my grip almost immediately. Pulling with one hand, I used the other to push my way past the bar so I could get out and help her. That's when the roller coaster started. Everything jerked and jolted forward and then Ruby slipped from my grasp. I looked back to see her being pulled into the shadows at the far end of the platform, her eyes and mouth circles of terror and agony as she screamed for us. Don't go! Don't leave me! Fuck, fuck, fuck! I heard George's scream above the rattling of the rails beneath us and George's own flailing as he continued to work himself free of the safety bars. He finally managed to get where he could turn around and peer at me between the headrest with crazed eyes. We have to go back and help her right now before those crazy fucks kill her. I nodded, clutching the bars beside me as we twisted up and down along the track. I know, we will, but we have to wait until we come back around. He shook his head and yelled again. What? We have to wait. We'll come back around. Wait, we're slowing down. I looked over the edge of the car. We were at one of the highest points of the roller coaster's path. A long, straight stretch before one final peak and a long, spiraling drop. But instead of moving at speed toward the drop-off, we were slowing to a crawl. In another few seconds, we were completely stopped. What the fuck? They're keeping us here so they can fucking hurt Ruby. He started clambering out of his car and I had to stand up and push him back down. 
He looked ready to punch me, and I held up my hands. Calm down. You'll break your neck. Let's think for a second. Looking around, a thought occurred to me. Our phones! We can... we can call the cops on our phones! George was already shaking his head. They made you lock your phone in lockers when you came in, remember? Fuck, you're right. Well, maybe we can... But it was too late. George was already back over the side, step-hopping down the track toward... What? A, a service ladder, maybe? Or did he think he could just walk down the steep drop to the other side of the rise? Fucking moron. There was already a stiff wind picking up, and I watched his steps grow less steady as he pushed on against it. I felt anger flaming in my chest, anger at someone hurting Ruby, anger at George for being so reckless, and anger at myself for being a coward. I didn't want to risk falling, and I didn't want to get attacked by whoever was hurting Ruby. I wanted to help her, of course, but I clearly wasn't willing to go as far as George was. I tried to tell myself that that was okay, that he was the one that had a crush on her, and that the two of us hadn't dated for years. But it sounded hollow, and I was still debating going after him when I saw the first hands poking up through the rail slats between George and the roller coaster cars. George! I screamed as I stood up in my car, the immediate sense of vertigo, temporarily overridden by fine panic and fear. Something's coming! They're coming for us! He turned around, first looking angry and then registering my words, terrified. George's eyes fell on the first figures that were crawling up onto the tracks with us. This close, and with the wind blowing past them on its way to me, I could smell the twin stenches of mint and rot thick enough to gag me. Wiping at my eyes, I yelled for George to run, even as I realized he had nowhere to go. I could see in his face he was realizing the same thing as the first of the figures stood up and started toward him. It was a little girl, maybe the same one Ruby had mentioned before. But how could it be? This girl was clearly rotting. Gray mottled skin peeking out from the sleeves of her faded sweater, and it looked as though the climb up the roller coaster track had scraped away several bits of decaying flesh on her legs and cheeks. Yet, despite all that, her voice sounded loud and strong as she paused and let out a strange chittering cry. I shuddered as the half dozen rotting people standing with her echoed the sound, and this was followed by many more. Some distant, some directly below us. One right behind. I started to turn as a hand dug into my shoulder, sinking in past the skin and muscle to reach the bone. Screaming, I tried to twist away, but it was too late. I was yanked backward into the row behind me, the silhouette of my attacker a dark, upside-down shadow as I looked up into the seal-gray sky. I felt raindrops begin to fall on my cheeks, and it was only as the thing above me leaned down that I realized it wasn't rain at all. It was Ruby drooling on me. Her right eye was gone and her lips had been torn to ribbons, but she still managed a ghastly version of her old smile as she pushed down on my shoulder and leaned forward with another of those chittering sounds. For a moment she just looked at me, but then her face was rushing into mine, darting forward for an impulsive kiss after all this time. Pain exploded as her teeth sank into my nose at the base. She bit harder and twisted as everything began to flare black around me. I was only distantly aware as she kept tearing at me, and I had the dim thought that at least it would be over soon. I would be dead, and I wouldn't have to worry about any of this pain anymore. 
and I realized that Ruby was talking to me as she chewed. Thick streams of crimson saliva trailed out of the corners of her mouth as she chittered, and as the pain in my face began to fade and new pains flared to life, I began to understand what she was saying. She was saying that we were dead, but we still hurt. We rotted, but we were never fully gone. We gorged, but we were never really full. The only way to lessen the pain was to kill more, to add more, to share and spread out the burden until it was more bearable. She said that once the world was dead, we could all finally be at peace. And then we could all rot away together. I vomited on the immaculate blue-gray carpet as I came around. Swan wrinkled her nose and rolled her chair a foot to the left before offering me a sympathetic smile. Rough one, hun? I wiped my mouth as my stomach hitched again. You... You could say that. Fuck this. Ruby was already standing unsteadily on her feet, rubbing her forehead. She shot the other woman a scowl as she held out her hand. John, are you ready to get out of here? Nodding, I took her hand and gave it a squeeze. Sorry I dragged you into this shit. Let's go. Aren't you forgetting something? I looked around at Swan. Lady, if you fucking think we're paying more for this after that... I swallowed the bile in the back of my throat. Well, we're not. The woman chuckled and shook her head. <laughs> no, of course not. Every night has been taken care of by your original payment and agreement. She held out a pair of orange cards. Comment cards. We'd like to get responses while everything is still fresh in your mind. No rush, of course, but if you can just bring them back with you tomorrow night. I stared at her incredulously. Ma'am, maybe you haven't been picking up what we're putting down. There's no way we're coming back. Compliments to the fucking chef. You wanted to give us a terrifying fucking night? Mission accomplished, but we're never coming back. Tucking the cards back into her palm, Swan just smiled and nodded. As you say, we'll put a pin in the evaluations then. Her smile widened as she stood up and ushered us out. But who knows? Maybe you'll have a change of heart after a good night's Ruby rolled her palms across the steering wheel as we stopped at the first stoplight. Shit, I'm still shaking all over. I don't know if it was that pill or the shit they do to us, but... I... fuck, I don't know. I feel all fucked up and wrong. I reached over and squeezed her leg. I know, sweetie. I should have looked into the more, I guess. We probably just need some rest and to drink some water. Flush out our systems, you know? She glanced over at me and then seemed to look past me into the back seat. I guess. Yeah. I just... I feel like we forgot something, something important. She met my eyes. You know what I mean? I went to give a quick response, but I could see she was worried. So instead, I looked out the empty blacktop ahead of us and tried to gauge how I really felt. Exhausted and queasy, sure. More than a little freaked out? You bet. But did I think that we were missing something? I looked back at her. I'm not sure, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe it's just the pill fucking with our heads. 
Let's stop at a gas station or something and get some water. Then we can go home, relax a few minutes, and then... Fuck! I followed Ruby's gaze to the blue lights flashing in the rearview mirror. Cursing, she began to pull over. This is the last shit I need tonight. I stopped at the fucking light, and now God knows what is in our system. She pointed toward the glove compartment as she shook her head and gave me a small smile. I'm sorry, I'm just stressed. Will you hand me the insurance card? I found the card and went to hand it to her when my eyes fell back on the rear view. The doors were already opening on the patrol car, and two officers were getting out. Their faces were illuminated in the raking flare of blue from their roof lights, and I felt my bowels loosen with the thrill of unknown fear ran through me. As they approached, I tried to rationalize my growing terror. It was the pill. It was the night. It was the worry about getting arrested forever was in the pill we swallowed. Or maybe in some irrational way, it was the strangeness of the cops themselves. Because it was odd. After all, how often do you see twins, much less twin cops? Why, they might be the only pair in the country. Maybe even the world. What seems to be the trouble, officer? I winced internally as Ruby sent the words, both because I knew from her tone that she was being sarcastic, and because I still had this growing panic that something was really wrong here. There was this strange sense of unreality and fear that didn't make sense given the situation. Yes, we had gotten pulled over by the police without knowing why, and yeah, it was pretty weird that they appeared to be twins. That's enough to make you a little jumpy or apprehensive. But I was bathed in a cold sweat as I tried to give a casual smile and rolled down my window at the second officer's approach. I realized my hands wouldn't stop shaking. I winced as a beam of light hit my eyes. How are you doing tonight, sir? Turning away from the light, I nodded. Doing fine, officer. Just ready to get home. The flashlight had been shifted, so it was still glaring into my peripheral vision. I see, I see. And where is home, sir? I blinked as I realized I was having trouble remembering the right answer. Um, it's it's not too far away, about 30 minutes away, I guess. Swallowing thickly, I added, down in the city. I wanted to hear what Ruby and the other officer were talking about, but it was taking all my focus to try and talk to this asshole who just kept standing there silently, as a waiting for another more satisfactory answer. After several more seconds, he finally went on. Oh, really? I thought I remembered you, and I thought you lived down the country, way out in the country, if I recollect. His voice shifted as he talked to his twin partner across the roof of the car. Don't you remember this fellow living way out in the woods? You know the place. The other officer responded. Chip, I think you're right. I remember this cat pretty well. He's not giving you the runaround, is he? Officer Chip leaned down, his face like a shadowed moon in the ambient glow of his flashlight. You're not fucking with me, are you, guy? Trying to tell me you live somewhere you don't? Feeling a flush of nervous anger, I turned and met his eyes. No, I'm not fucking with you. Why did you stop us? The light clicked off as Officer Chip stepped back from the door. Please step out of the car, sir. Look, I just... Sir, 
Ma'am, please step out of the car without further incident. This was Chip's partner, and as I looked past Ruby, I saw the officer had stepped back with his gun and pulled out and pointed downward. Jesus, okay, okay. Ruby gave me a scared look before stepping out onto her side. Not wanting to make things worse, I stepped out as well. The officers directed us to opposite rear corners of Ruby's car and patted us down before telling us that we were under arrest. Ruby's eyes widened as she looked between the two of them. For fucking what? Chip's partner smiled thinly as he took a step toward her. Well, what have you done wrong? I moved between them. Nothing. We haven't done nothing that we know of. Will you please just talk to us and explain what's going on? Chip was moving to pull me back, but the other officer raised his hand to stop him. The man's eyes flicked between my face and Ruby's. Do either of you know a man by the name of George Thurman? Champ, this is a waste of good... The man, apparently Officer Champ, cut his eyes towards his twin, and Officer Chip fell silent. Looking satisfied, he cut his eyes back to us. Well? I felt a strange twist in my stomach when he said the name, but no, I didn't remember anyone named George Thurman. Maybe I had met them before somewhere, but if I did so, it didn't make much of an impact. I told him so, and his gaze shifted to Ruby. She shook her head. No, we don't know him, or not well enough to remember his name if we do. Officer Champ studied her for a moment before nodding. I see, I see. Well, maybe this is a misunderstanding, then. He glanced at Officer Chip before pointing to the back of Ruby's car. Mind if we check your trunk, ma'am? It would help us speed this whole thing along. Ruby started to argue, but I reached over and gave her arm a squeeze. Let's let them look. Uh, We don't have anything to hide, or maybe this can clear whatever this is up. She frowned at me before giving a resigned nod and handing the officer champ the keys. Gesturing for us to step back, he approached and opened the trunk, his expression never changing as he saw what was inside. That didn't seem that odd, as I wasn't expecting anything to be back there beyond a jack and maybe jumper cables or a blanket. It was only when I heard Ruby start screaming that I looked down and saw the bloody ruin of a man's body, twisted and stuffed into the trunk. Champ was already grabbing Ruby, even as Chip came up behind me and yanked my hands behind my back. I was in shock, and didn't even think of pulling away until I heard the ratcheting click of the handcuffs going on on my wrist. As the bands tightened down, Chip leaned forward, his voice almost jolly as he whispered in my ear, It looks like you know poor old George better than you care to admit. We didn't do that. I I swear, we would never do anything like that. I had my hand on Ruby's back as she tried to reason with the officers through the metal mesh separating the back seat from the front of the patrol car. Her whole body was trembling, and I knew mine was too. The odd thought occurred to me that the two of us were like dueling tectonic plates, shaking against each other until we tore the world apart. And whether it was us doing it or something else... Everything was falling apart just the same. Officer Chip turned back to us as we drove on, his face twitching as he looked at Roby. Ma'am, as you were told, you may want to keep quiet, and if you want to give a statement, you can do it at the station. A thought occurred to me, and I leaned forward. Aren't you going the wrong way for the police station? The precinct for this part of town is in the other direction. 
I saw Officer Champ's eyes glance up at me in the rear view and I shrugged at him. I did contract work for a city a few years ago and I had installations at all the precincts. And I don't remember one out the way we're heading. Champ's eyes cut to his partner and then back up to me. It's a new office, a satellite office. We use it for more sensitive cases, like when a fellow gets butchered by his best friends and such. He was not our fucking friend. We didn't know him and we didn't hurt him. Chip leaned closer to the metal mesh. So you say. But it sure looks funny, doesn't it? Maybe we'll be more honest when we reach the farm. Ruby had already sat back in resignation, and now I joined her, holding her hand tightly as I watched her journey through the windows of the patrol car. I really didn't remember any kind of police station out there, or much of anything to be honest. A couple of factories, a county dump, and then miles of woods. So where were they taking us? Everything about this was wrong, but I didn't know enough to know how to react. Was this all a dream? Was the pill distorting our reality and making us hallucinate? Or maybe this was still part of our second night at the true horror movie experience? Yes, that made sense. This was the only thing that made sense. They were fucking with us, making us think it was over when it wasn't. Suppressing a relieved smile, I leaned over to whisper to Ruby. I think... I think this is all part of it. The horror experience thing... I think they're just putting us on. I looked at Ruby's face and it looked just as shell-shocked and terrified as before. She wouldn't even meet my eyes. She just kept staring ahead as she spoke. Maybe so, but I think I do remember that man. I I think I knew him. I think we both did. A tear formed at the corner of her eye and began trailing down her cheek. I think I loved him. Gripping her hand harder, I fought to keep my voice low. That's bullshit. We love each other. We've been together since college, remember? And I think we'd both remember if you loved somebody else. I let go of her hand and touched her chin, turning her face toward me gently. It's the pill, Ruby. It's still fucking with us. They're freaking us out and making us believe shit that isn't true. That's all it is. Ruby let me turn her head, but her eyes were still fixed on the windows as she gave a slight nod. Maybe so. Maybe it's all part of their game. Maybe that explains that, too. I followed her gaze, sucking in a breath as I realized what she was looking at. The trees on both sides of the road. They were all filled with webs. Thick, ropey strands trailed from branch to branch and tree to tree, and in several places I could dimly make out the silken canopy that crisscrossed over the road itself, silver and ghostly in the dim moonlight. Oh, oh God, what, what is this? What the fuck is this? What happened here? Where are we? Chip and Chomp, no, Champ, officers... Chip and Champ chortled together, but didn't answer my questions. I was going to ask again, but then we were turning into a driveway blocked by a massive wrought iron gate. As the car slowed, the gate began to open. I glanced around for any sign of where we actually were, and in the moments before we started moving through the gates, 
I finally glimpsed a tarnished metal sign on one of the brick gate posts. I only had a moment, and the green sheen of the metal made it hard to read, but as we drove on toward the massive lawn and the shadowed hulking buildings that lay beyond it, I kept turning over in my mind what I thought I'd read. Not something about a police station, or even a place nicknamed the farm. Instead, the sign had simply said, Welcome to Greenheart Home. We hope you enjoy your stay. The patrol car drove up to the largest of the buildings, the brief flash of headlights across its face revealing what looks like a massive manor house that would have seemed more at home at an English countryside or in a Jane Austen movie than tucked away in a web-shrouded forest in Northern California. Staring out the side window, I could see a thin but bright shaft of yellow light streaming out of the slightly ajar front doors, though there was still no signs of anyone else being anywhere around. I turned back to look at Ruby, but she was still silently weeping, apparently oblivious to the fact that we had stopped and the twins were now coming around to get us. We were shuffled up the stone steps and through the front door. Once inside, I felt myself freeze for a moment. This place. What is this place? Not a police station. We were in what had probably been the front hall of a luxurious home, or whatever Greenheart home actually was, but now everything seemed old and abandoned with the years, possibly decades, of disuse. Wallpaper, likely once a bright cream color, hung from the walls in tattered strips of yellow and black. The chairs and small tubes that loitered at the edges of the small hall all looked faded and warped by time and moisture. Rotting teeth and a head full of peeling, discolored skin and stale, dead-smelling air. I had time to think that we were being led into a corpse, a corpse that was maybe still hungry after all these years, and then Champ was shoving me forward. Hurry up, bud. You're not our only stop tonight. We're already behind schedule. They guided us down the hall before putting us in a large, soggy parlor off to one side. I went to complain, to demand a phone call, or to see some sign that they were actually police officers, but something inside held me back. It would just make things worse. I already knew these twins were wrong, that this place was wrong, and that bad things were going to happen to us if we didn't get away. To keep playing dumb, to keep begging for reassurance, then the lies the twins were telling us weren't lies at all. It would just let them know how weak and scared I was. Give them something else to smirk and laugh about. So, I kept quiet doing my best to stay between them and Ruby as she shuffled into the room without complaint. Her reaction to all this, as well as what she had been saying in the car, were scaring me as much as anything. She had to just be in shock or still suffering from the pill's effects, but that didn't make it any less jarring to see her acting so... so broken. When they closed the door with promises to return shortly, I gently grabbed Ruby and squeezed her arms. You okay? You still with me? She glanced up and nodded, sniffling. <laughs> yeah, I am. I just... This is all fucking with me a lot. I keep feeling like there are things I should know, but I, I can't keep a hold of them. Wiping her nose, she gave a bitter laugh. 
<laughs> Maybe it's all in my head, you know? But it's like the rest of it. It feels really fucking real. I pulled her closer into a quick hug. I know. Let's just find a way out of here, okay? Either this is part of their game or it's real. Either way, escaping is probably the best thing at this point. I looked down at her. Agreed. Then trying to smile, I added, Penguin? Her eyes brightened slightly and she nodded. Yeah. Fucking Penguin. We spent what felt like several hours trying to find a way out of that room. The only door was locked and didn't budge no matter how much we pushed and pried. The windows were no better. We took turns hitting the glass, throwing things at them, using everything we could think of to either open or break one of the three large windows in the room's outer wall. Nothing worked. There weren't even signs of us scratching the glass or chipping the stained wood of the window frames. We eventually turned to looking for a weak spot in the wall or floor we could break through, but they were no better than the windows. We never raised our eyes too high, but I guess from the height in the hallway that the room's ceiling was also high and likely as impossibly durable as everything else had been. Only after we had collapsed onto the floor in exhaustion did the door open again. It was Chip and Chomp returning as promised, and they had brought someone new with them. A woman that... I recognized her. My body seemed to go still, with even my heart falling silent as she entered the room and met my gaze. I'd seen this woman before. I had the image of her sitting in my room, of her telling me... something. That we knew each other, that all of this was wrong, that we were all in danger. That she was my wife. I looked over at Ruby and saw the same confused recognition on her face that I felt sure was on my own. She knew her too. This only confirmed when the woman, what was her name, why couldn't I remember anymore, ran across the room and started hugging us. Ruby was crying again, but this time it seemed like happy tears. I heard her saying over and over again, I thought you were dead, I thought you were dead. I went to respond when the woman turned back to me, and before I could react, she kissed me deeply on the lips, pushing her tongue past my own with a desperate strength that I first took only for passion. I felt myself responding immediately, and then something hit the back of my throat. Pulling back slightly, the woman quickly leaned forward and whispered in my ear, Just swallow. Those words seemed to freeze the moment, dangling me confused and terrified over some dark chasm, not sure of which way I should turn to land safely. Did I trust this strange woman, who, for all I knew, was part of this whole thing as much as Swan or the twins? But then she pulled back, her eyes finding mine, and I had the briefest of flickers. Some feeling or memory beyond the last few nights of finding her in my house uninvited. She smiled at me and nodded slightly. Please. For me. So, I did. 
He immediately heard a screeching sound overhead. As I raised my eyes to the ceiling, I had time to see thicker patches of darkness moving around the shadows before everything fell away except for the terrible, furious noise. I felt like I was drowning in that sound. My last memory was recognizing Ruby and Jenna's screams as their voices joined to the rest, pouring into that endless black sea as it pulled me under. I woke up back at home the next morning, and as I slowly sat up in bed, my first thought was that it had all been a nightmare. A long, strange, and terrible nightmare. I looked over, half expecting to see Jenna laying next to me. When she wasn't there, I got up, wincing slightly at how sore I felt. My leg and back muscles protested and all my joints ached. It was as though I had worked out for five hours while fighting off a bad flu. Still, I had this need to see Jenna, to make sure she was alright. Maybe she was making coffee in the kitchen. No, no sign of her there. In the bathroom or outside? No sign of her or any car but my own in the driveway. My heart started thudding as I went back inside and looked for my phone. I would just text her and see how she was doing, where she was off to. But she wasn't listed in my phone. I looked through my text messages, my emails, my social media profiles, nothing. There was no sign of her anywhere. I was feeling nauseous now, my head swimming as I began wandering through the house looking for signs of her. Decorations, books, clothes, a toothbrush, something that would show me that she was real and that all the horrors from the past few days had been a bad dream, but there was nothing. Finally, I thought and pulled my phone back out. George and Ruby. They could help me. They'd know if I was married to Jenner or going fucking crazy. They could help me figure it out. I couldn't find George in my phone either. I tried Ruby, but she was gone too. My phone wasn't empty. I had business contacts and a few acquaintances, but my wife and my two best friends... It was like they didn't exist at all. My knees groaned in protest as I sank down onto the living room couch and my head held between my hands. What the fuck was this? Was I really going crazy? Had I dreamed up an entire life that didn't exist? People, memories of people that were never really there? No, that's impossible. And out of all the impossible things I'd seen or dreamed or whatever in the past few days, this was the one that I refused to accept. Jenna, Ruby, and George. They were real, and I was going to find them. The country courthouse was a 20-minute drive, and it was only as I was about to turn into the parking lot that I realized I didn't even know what day it was anymore. Looking at my phone again, I saw it was Monday morning. Good. Everything should be open. It took 10 minutes of wandering, but I finally found the records office for marriage licenses. The surly old man that sat behind the desk heavily hinted I could have just gone to their website and not wasted his time, but it had only took him a few minutes to find and provide me with a copy of my marriage license. John Armitage and Jenna Freer married over six years ago. I was about to thank the man and leave when I had a thought. Maybe she had died and I was having trouble coping, had a mental breakdown or something. 
I asked him to check for a death certificate for Jenna, and then for Ruby and George, but there was nothing. My mind raced as I was crossing the parking lot back to my car, and I was so preoccupied that I almost didn't stop as a deputy's patrol car passed in front of me. I waved her down and asked where the sheriff's office was. When she pointed to the large brown building directly behind the courthouse, I started walking that way immediately. Once inside, I asked the front desk if they had any records of a missing persons report for Jenna Freer in the past few years. The receptionist, who had initially been friendly, seemed to blink when I said the name. Instead of looking it up, she looked at me again more closely. You her husband? Frowning, I nodded slowly. Yes, that's right. Her gaze had grown cold as her lips thinned to a pale line. Just have a seat, sir. I'll have someone with you shortly. I wanted to ask more questions, but decided not to rock the boat until I had more information. It was only a couple of minutes before a large man with a graying fringe of hair and a weirdly angry expression came through a side door and told me to come on back. We walked silently through the back corridors of the sheriff's office until we arrived at a small, cluttered office that said, Investigator Shine, on the door. Moving behind the desk, Investigator Shine gestured for me to sit down in one of the guest chairs. So, Mr. Armitage, what can I do for you today? Got some new information for me? I raised an eyebrow. What are you talking about? Do you know me? Shine's expression grew harder as his face began to redden. What kind of bullshit game are you playing at? Raising my hands, I tried to keep my own rising anger out of my voice. Look, I, I think I'm having some memory problems or something. I don't know if it was an accident or what, but I can't find my wife and I'm just trying to get help. If you know me or if you know her, please tell me. The investigator's eyes stared at me like flat black stones, and it was several moments before he gave a quick nod. Fine. I'll play along. But so you're aware, I'm recording this conversation. I shrugged. That's fine. Okay, so to answer your not-at-all-absurd questions, yes, I know you. I'm the one that investigated your wife's disappearance four years ago. Ring any bells? I shook my head, trying to focus on what he was saying instead of the growing unease rolling in my belly. No, I remember Jenna, but I don't remember everything. And, and look, I know how this sounds, but I have two friends, two of my best friends, George and Ruby, that I can't find either. It's like I've lost all contact information for them, and I can't remember how or why that would be. Shine's eyes narrowed as he leaned forward. Are you saying they're gone now, too? Shaking my head, I met his gaze. I don't know, but you know them? They're real? The man looked more uneasy now. Yeah, I met them. Interviewed them about your wife's disappearance. They claimed you were at home with a bad cold or something when she went missing, but that was about it. None of you had any real idea of where she might have went that she was just suddenly gone. As you may, or may not, recall, I thought it was bullshit. 
that one or more of you did something to her and the others were helping to cover it up. He glowered at the memory. But I can never find her or any solid proof to confirm my suspicions. I would never hurt Jenna. He nodded, clearly unconvinced. Hmm. What about Ruby and George? Would you maybe hurt them to shut them up? Sitting back, I looked at him baffled for a moment. What the fuck are you talking about? I, I, I came here for your help. He shrugged. Maybe. Or maybe they were feeling guilty and you decided to off them so they couldn't talk. And now you're in here to set up an insanity defense just in case we find the bodies. That's... I shook my head again. No, I, I, I didn't hurt them. Just tell me. Did you ever find any link between Jenna and something called the true horror movie experience? Shine stared at me. Buddy, the only thing I can link your wife's disappearance, or your friends if they're gone, is you. Leaning forward, he gave me a small, conspiratorial smile. So why don't you tell me more about what you think might have happened to them? Standing up, I started backing toward the door. No, I, I don't think so. Thanks for your time. Shine made no move to stop me as I left, but as I was striding down the hallway toward the front lobby... I heard him call out after me. You can keep running, John, but it won't work. It's just a matter of time. When I reached the car, I was shaking so bad that I couldn't even start the engine. Maybe I was just crazy. Maybe even crazy enough to have hurt them? That didn't feel right or true, but can I trust my instincts if I was really fucking crazy? I started crying, the stifling heat of the car's interior seeming to dry my tears as they rolled down my cheeks. I missed Jenna so much, I missed them all so much, and I didn't know what to do. I suppressed a shiver at the change in the air. It was as though the temperature had plunged 30 degrees in an instant. Looking around, I felt a moment of vertigo as I saw I wasn't in my car anymore. I was back in the room with Swan. As I stared at her bewildered, she met my eyes and gave me a warm smile. Congratulations on being selected to participate in the true horror movie experience. This is your orientation for night three. The Last Road Trip, Part 1 of 3 Fire has its own smell. Do you know that? I'm not talking about the smell of gasoline from the ruptured gas tank or the sickly sweet smell of people cooking. I don't know how to describe it, but I don't think it's the smell of the air burning. Not exactly. No, I think it's the fire itself. The consumer, not the consumed, has a smell all of its own. I remember thinking that as the flames grew near on White Creek Bridge that, and I hoped I was the only one left alive. My father had been planning our family vacation for months. He worked as an aeronautical engineer, and aside from a couple of days at Christmas, he only got a chance to take off for vacation once every three years. This year was extra special, however. He'd blocked out two weeks for the four of us to go driving across the country. We weren't taking an RV. We were only planning on driving between Ohio and Nevada, but it was still further than I'd ever been and a longer vacation than we'd had since an alleged trip to Canada when I was a toddler. 
but at 16, I was old enough to both dread the trip and be excited by it. I didn't know how the four of us would fare riding in the family SUV for hours on end, much less staying at a bunch of random motels we found along the way. My father was refusing to have a strict travel itinerary or reservations, he said. He needed a few days without plans or structure. That was great in theory until we wound up with no good options for food or rooms in some back corner of nowhere. Then my parents would start fighting while I tried to fade into the background and Sharon started bitching about how big a mistake the trip had been. Sharon was also one of the main reasons I was also excited about the trip. She had gone to college two years earlier and while we were still close, it wasn't the same. Every time she came back for the summer or a holiday, I could feel the difference in our ages and experiences thickening the air between us. It might sound silly, but I hoped this trip, even if it became an exercise in shared misery, would help make us closer again. We were on the second day of the trip when Dad first talked about the blue van that was following us. He had been jolly and relaxed at the start of the trip, not even commenting much on the traffic snarl around Cleveland as we slowed to a crawl in the early afternoon. But by mid-morning on the second day, there was a palpable shift in his mood. He didn't talk much, and I noticed he kept glancing up at the rearview mirror as though checking something. It wasn't until after lunch that he puffed out a breath and looked over at Mom. I think that same van has been following us for a while. Sitting in the back behind her, I could only see the quick movements of her head as she glanced in his direction and then out the side-view mirror. His voice had been low and casual when he spoke, but hers was barely more than a breathless whisper. How long? He gave a light shrug. I first noticed it early this morning. I figured it was just a coincidence. They were just headed the same way we were. But after a few turns, I started paying more attention. My father paused and glanced in the rearview again before continuing on. Then we stopped for lunch at the diner. We were in there for, what, an hour or so? But when we leave, that same blue van was behind us again. Sharon leaned forward. Are you serious? We got some fucking creeper following us? We both turned and glanced back through the rear glass of the car. He was right. The road we were on was a quiet four-lane highway, and while some of it was hilly or filled with turns, this particular stretch was long and flat. It made it easy to see the old blue van following a quarter of a mile behind us. What are we going to do? It was the sharp note of fear in my mother's voice that brought my head back around. It's not that the situation wasn't strange, possibly even a little concerning, but... She sounded and looked as though she was terrified. This woman, who in my memory had never even been more than mildly anxious, was visibly shaking as she reached out to touch my father's forearm. He glanced at her hand and pulled away slightly, his face hard. We don't do anything. We stick to the plan. It's still probably just a coincidence, and if it's not, we'll deal with it as it comes. He glanced back at me and Sharon. Got it, girls? We both echoed. Yes, sir. But Sharon was giving me a look that said she knew something was wrong, too. If our parents were that worried, why not call the cops? 
And what was Dan talking about when he said, stick to the plan? What plan? I thought the entire point of the trip was that we had no plan. I felt my stomach rumbling with unease as I glanced back again. The van was still there, and I wasn't sure how long it would be before we hit another town or stopped for the night. Staring out my window, I tried to get my mind off it, but I kept thinking about Mom and Dad. Right or wrong, they thought something was going on, and they were scared. So was... I jumped slightly as I felt a hand on mine. Looking over, I saw Sharon smiling at me as she gave my hand a squeeze. She mouthed the words, try not to worry, and I nodded as I returned her squeeze. I was still worried, of course, but it was better to feel less alone, and I kept telling myself there was nothing to it anyway. Give it a couple of days, and all I'd feel was a slight embarrassment that I'd freaked myself out in the first place. That was the night our mother disappeared. Dad had gotten us rooms at a small-town motel and told us they'd meet us in an hour at the restaurant across the road. He hesitated before adding that while he didn't think there was anything to the van thing, really, we should call if we saw it again. I had seen the van pass by when we turned into the motel earlier, but that didn't mean it wouldn't come back again. I almost asked why he didn't just call 911 if he was still worried about it, but something kept me from the question. Instead, I just nodded and told him we'd let him know if we saw anything suspicious. When he arrived by himself at the restaurant... I hadn't thought much of it. At first, I assumed that Mom was just being slow and would be over in a minute. And when he said that she was tired and laying down, I took him at his word. Sharon, on the other hand, kept bringing it up during the meal, asking if we should go check on her, if we should bring her some food. He calmly rebuffed each question, saying that no, it was better to just leave her to get some rest. But Sharon kept asking questions and making comments about it, seeming to grow more upset every time. I didn't know what the problem was, but it felt like it went deeper than just concern that my mom had a hard day on the road. We were all crossing back over the highway to the motel when Sharon picked up the pace and began heading to our parents' room. To my surprise, Dad pursued her, grabbing her arm and spinning her around as she reached the sidewalk that ran outside of every door. They were too far away for me to hear what they were saying, but it was clear they were both angry and upset. After a few seconds of back and forth, Sharon stalked off toward her own room while Dad turned and gave me a wave. See you in the morning, Pumpkin. Call if you need us. I tried to talk to Sharon when I got back in the room, but she was lying on the bed with her back to me, and the most I was able to get out of her was a muffled, leave me the fuck alone. I knew better than to push it, so I watched some bad cable TV before drifting off to sleep. I woke up to Dad knocking on our door, telling us it was time to get up and get going. I groggily changed clothes and brushed my hair before lugging my backpack out to the car. I was looking around for Mom when our father came out of the room with his bag. His face somber, Dad waved Sharon over before he began. Girls, your mom had to leave early this morning. We got word that your Aunt Bethany was in a bad accident and is in the hospital. He swallowed as his expression grew stricken. She's in the ICU, and we don't know how it's going to turn out quite yet. So your mom took a taxi to the bus station early this morning and headed back to be with Bethany. 
Sharon started to speak and he raised his hands. I suggest we all just head back, but she knew how long we'd been planning this trip. She said she wanted us to keep going. If things turned around for Beth, she said she might even fly out to meet us in Nevada in a few days. He stared at Sharon for several moments before turning to me. That sound okay to you girls? Sharon scowled at him. Not really, no. This hasn't been the best trip so far, and, well, I think we should go home and be with Mom and Aunt Beth. I could already see that path quickly becoming long, boring days at the hospital, which Sharon would only slowly bail on until she was hardly around for the rest of the summer. And the next summer, maybe she wouldn't come back home at all. So I spoke up. I think we should keep going. Mom can let us know how Aunt Beth is doing, and I know how much you've been wanting this trip, Dad. He beamed at me. That's true, Pumpkin. Turning, he smiled at Sharon. Let's keep going for now, okay? If things don't get better for our trip or for Beth, we can reevaluate as we go. How does that sound? Sharon looked at him for another moment before dropping her gaze. Yes, sir. Seemingly satisfied, he threw his bag into the back. Okay, then. Let's load up and head out. I had planned on trying to talk some to Sharon on the ride that day, but when we'd gotten in, Dad asked her to move up to the front and help him navigate. She'd given me a strange look before getting out and going around to the front passenger seat. I wasn't sure if she was still upset about whatever they'd argued about last night, was worried about Bethany or Mom heading back alone, or just generally wished she was back with her college friends, but something was off. She barely talked at all, except for occasionally giving directions, and whenever I asked her a question, she either ignored me or gave a short, curt response. After an hour of this, I decided to text Mom and see how she was doing. Maybe she'd heard more about Bethany. I'd only met my aunts a handful of times over the years, but she seemed like a sweet woman, and while Sharon and I never talked to her outside of her visits, I knew Mom kept in touch and always seemed excited whenever they got together. Both for her sake and for Mom's, I hoped she'd be okay. After 30 minutes of no response after I texted Mom, I decided to try Sharon again. Dad was listening to some radio shows, so I just texted Sharon instead of asking her out loud. Have you heard from Mom? I tried texting her a while ago and I haven't heard anything. No, I haven't heard anything either. Have you heard anything from Bethany or her kids? I don't have their numbers. Mm, me either. What crawled up your ass and died? You've been bitchy since last night. Did I do something? There was no response for several minutes, and despite feeling irritated and worried, I felt myself starting to get hypnotized by the drone of the talk show, mixed with the windshield wipers sloshing away sheets of rain as we headed into a summer storm. I jumped when my phone suddenly buzzed again. You didn't do anything. We need to talk, but not around him. Meet me in the bathroom when we stop. If something weird or bad happens before then, you need to run. Don't question it. Don't try to help. Just fucking run. It must be a joke, right? Some kind of sick, totally not funny practical joke that Sharon was playing on me. Maybe even Dad was in on it, though. That seemed very out of character for him. He was always either serious, laid back, or sweet. He wasn't much for jokes, and I couldn't think of any time he'd ever tried to trick me. But why would she do that either? 
We had our fights over the years, but overall, we'd always been really close. And unlike a lot of big sisters, she'd never really been mean to me or put me down. And I couldn't really think of a time she'd ever lied to me about anything. Plus, this would have to be the worst timing ever. Mom, on her way back to see Bethany, Sharon, and Dad already having some weird disagreement about... Well, I don't know... But whether it was about us not getting to see Mom last night or something else, it seemed like a bad time to pull a prank. I looked up at the profile of my father's face. He looked calm and fairly content as he drove along, listening to the radio and happy to be getting some quality time with his two girls. I knew that part of his reason for the trip, aside from getting a break from work, was to spend more time with all of us. And even with everything going on, he was trying to stay positive and give us a good trip. Anger began bubbling up in my chest at the thought. What was her fucking problem? Was she so unhappy to be on the trip that she wanted to sabotage it? Or at the very least, did she plan on taking out her angst on her gullible little sister? Well, fuck that. I wasn't that young anymore. And if she'd gone to college just to learn to be a bitch, she could go back there. Stabbing at my phone with my thumb, I typed out a quick response text. Worried that it was... Too harsh and accusing. I deleted it and start over. What are you talking about? What is wrong? Text me something. I'm worried. I heard her phone vibrate as she got the text, but after another 20 minutes of no responses, I'd had enough. I thought about just calling her out in front of Dad, but something held me back. I really didn't have a clue what was going on, and I needed to play it cool until I found out more. Maybe she really was worried about something, and she wanted to confide in me. The thought of her coming to me with her problems cooled my anger, but if anything, it made my anxiety worse. What if something was really wrong? We were coming up on a gas station, and I saw my chance. I told Dad I needed to go to the bathroom, and smiling at me in the rearview mirror, he gave me a nod as he started to slow down the car. He said it was a good time to get gas and snacks anyway. As we got out, I headed off for the bathroom, my stomach in a knot. I tried not to run, but I wanted to hear what Sharon had to say as soon as possible. Rip the bandage off quick to get it done. Had she been kicked out of school? Was she pregnant? Did she rack up a bunch of credit card debts and was afraid to tell her parents? What could it be? Sharon had followed behind me at a slower pace, and seeing her face when she had entered the bathroom made my stomach sink lower. She looked terrible, with lips pressed into a thin line and weary gaze that couldn't light on me for long before trailing off to the dingy tile corners of the room. It was a two-stall bathroom with a deadbolt on the outer door to the room, so after peeking under the stalls, she locked the door and turned back to me. The several... Heartbeats of silence that followed was more than I could handle, and rather than wait for her to start, I blurted out a question. Are you on drugs? Sharon did meet my eyes then, her own widening in surprise before narrowing into a frown. What? No. Jesus. Is that what you think this is about? I shrugged, my voice thick with emotion. I don't know. I don't know what's going on because you won't tell me. You're just being weird and leaving me messages that... I don't know. Are you trying to scare me? Is this some kind of stupid joke? Her face softened as she reached out and touched my arm. 
No, Tree, it's not a joke. Tree. I'd gotten that nickname when I was little, not because my name was Teresa, but because I loved a book called The Giving Tree, so much so that I carried it around in me when I was little. Sharon was the only one that still called me that, even if she hadn't used the nickname in, what, two years? Normally, the old name might have brought back a warm feeling of past memories and our bond as sisters and friends, but now it seemed... forced. Used as some subtle means of manipulating me, of making me listen to her by trading on that sisterhood and friendship, of tricking me. I heard the anger in my voice as I responded. Then what the fuck is it then? I saw her recoil a little and felt a thrill of satisfaction. I normally never cursed around my family, not even Sharon, but I was mad and I wanted her to know that she wasn't the only one that was growing up or could have an attitude. Squeezing my arm, she shook her head slightly. I'm going to tell you, but you need to promise me that you'll really listen, that you'll hear me out on the whole thing. It's going to be hard for you to believe me at first, and you may think that I'm lying, but I swear to God, I'm not. But please, promise you'll hear everything I have to say before you interrupt or try to leave. We will only have a few minutes before he'll come looking for us. So I have to hurry. Okay? Again, she was calling him he instead of dad or daddy. Like he was a stranger. Glaring at her, I nodded. Okay. I promise. She took a deep breath and began. I don't remember when they brought you home. Not exactly. I was only four at the time, and my memories from that age are murky. It's kind of like the swamp we went to on your field trip that time. Lots of dark water with little trees and hills sticking up here and there. What I do remember is a time when you weren't there. And then a time when you were. And I remember loving you, my new baby sister from the first time I can remember seeing you. But the thing is, I do have some memories from before you got there. We were a lot more isolated before you came along. And it wasn't until we moved and you started going to preschool that we started socializing more. That didn't seem weird to me at the time, but there were other things that stood out even when I was little. For instance, I didn't remember mom ever being pregnant with you. I didn't even know what being pregnant was until I started school in the first grade. I remember we had a substitute teacher that was a few months along, and at first I just thought she was fat, but then we talked about the teacher at recess, and the other kids made fun that I didn't know what being pregnant was. At first, I'd been more worried about being embarrassed, but over the next few days, something kept bothering me. It was this memory I had of Mom, laying out in the backyard in the sun. She's always kept in good shape, and back then, well, in my memory, I just remember thinking how pretty she was. Her golden hair, her brown skin, and her flat-toned stomach. She looked like the workout girls on TV. That memory was from a couple years earlier, before we moved, before I had started school, and 
I was only four, going on five at the time, but I was pretty sure of when I'd seen Mom laying in the sun. It was just a few days before they brought my new baby sister home. So I asked her about it. I didn't realize it at the time, but her reaction, it it wasn't normal. She didn't explain anything to me or even try to laugh or lie and brush it off. Instead, she looked at me like she almost stepped on a snake, standing frozen in panic for several seconds before shutting me off to my room, telling me not to leave or talk to you until Dad got home. I don't remember all the details now, but I remember being scared, worried that I was in trouble somehow, but then Dad came home and they came in to see me. They told me that my questions were perfectly normal and how lucky they were to have such a smart little girl. The truth was... You were adopted. They had to explain to me what that was too, but they did, and I think I understood. What I remember the most is feeling so much better when we were done talking. They told me not to tell anyone, including you, because it was a secret. That we all loved you so much, and we didn't want anyone thinking we loved you less just because you were adopted. For me, it was the opposite. I felt like I was so lucky to have gotten such a great baby sister, and I felt even more protective of you after that. Like you were a gift I had to take care of. We grew up, became best friends, and for the most part I never worried about this since the day they explained things to my room. No interrupting, remember? I'm not finished telling you everything. Look, I, I, I never had any real reason to doubt that what they told me about your adoption, but... Looking back at it now, I I don't know. Some of it was that I was young and I trusted them too much. Some of it was that I was willfully blind and didn't want to notice anything being wrong. But over the years, I've seen things. He's he's not right. Neither of them are. I, I used to think maybe they were just weird hippies or something into new age stuff or meditation or whatever, right? But... But, well, you know how Dad has his workshop down in the basement, and we can't ever go down there. Mom always said it was his private space, and I guess I get that, but I I don't know. They've always been weird about it. The couple of times I poked around at the door or asked to go in there while we were growing up, Dad would just get real quiet, and Mom would bawl me out about it. And there's other stuff. They've never been overly social people, Right? He's working most of the time, and she's either working or at home doing some project or another. How many times over the years have you seen them invite people over or go out with another couple or anything? And some people like to stay at home, and they're older, so I get it. That's not really what bothers me. What bothers me is that they actually do have friends, or at least people they do stuff with. Remember a couple of years ago we went to Salt Lake for that convention? It was the month before I was going off to college, and I was pissed because we had to stay home and I missed that summer orientation thing. Well, a few days after they got back, I was looking through the laundry for a shirt or something, and I saw a piece of paper mixed in with the dirty clothes. I checked it before just throwing it away, and it caught my attention. It was a rental car receipt for the week they were gone, but not for Salt Lake City. It was in Michigan some little suburb of Detroit, and it was in Mom's name. Maybe I should have asked her about it, but for some reason I was scared to. I just kept thinking about the times they'd get phone calls where they'd get an odd look and go shut themselves in another room. 
And I'd say I was overreacting, that I was reading too much into things. Like, maybe they just like to look at porn, right? I mean, I know it's gross to think about our parents watching internet porn, but at least I could wrap my head around it. The problem was, some part of me knew that wasn't what was going on. I'd been wrestling with what to do since finding the rental receipt. Do I talk to them? Do I tell you? Or do I let it go? I wanted everything to just be okay and normal, but I kept thinking back to all the times I'd wondered if something wasn't off, if there wasn't some part of themselves that they kept hidden from us. And then one day, Mom forgot to clear her browsing history. It was the weekend I was heading to college. Her and Dad were carrying my car to get checked while I finished my last of packing. I was wandering around the house, trying to think of anything I might have forgotten when I saw her laptop open and unlocked on the kitchen table. I already had a lie in mind if they caught me on her laptop. I wanted to check the schedule for my freshman events for the next day, even though my phone was right there in my pocket. My heart thudding, I sat down and opened the browser. There was a lot of normal stuff, but there was a lot of strange stuff too. The thing that bothered me the most was this strange website called The Black Room. It had a password to get in, and it wasn't like it looked that sinister or anything, but its plainness, it almost made it more creepy, you know? Especially when I had no idea what it went to or why our mom would be going there repeatedly. Then I clicked the link to our cloud storage. Again, most of the pictures were normal stuff that you'd expect, but there was a photo folder that was separate from the rest, buried in a bigger folder of recipes. The photo folder was just called The Group, so I clicked it. I... I don't know what those pictures were. A lot of people, some hurting each other, some maybe having sex or something, some... It looked like a ritual or ceremony, or it was... It was hard to tell in some of them, and I couldn't stomach looking too close, but some of those pictures... I don't really have words for them. I kept trying to tell myself they were faked, but I somehow knew they weren't. All that was bad enough, but it wasn't until I got towards the end of the 20 or so pictures that I saw Dad in one. Then in the last one, they were both in the picture. I never really saw them doing anything in those pictures, but it was clear they were part of the same gathering that was in the older photos. I could barely breathe as I closed the laptop. It was like my entire world had contracted into just that day and that moment and I couldn't see anything else. Maybe that's why I didn't notice that they had come home. I know they saw me on the laptop, but they didn't mention it, neither did I. From their angle, I doubt they knew what I was looking at, and I just tried to act normal as my mind raced with what I should do. I thought about grabbing you and going to the police, trying to get some kind of help or protection, but... From what? It may be they were part of some weird orgy group or something, but I didn't have any proof they were hurting anyone or, well, really doing anything at all. And I didn't want to upset you unless I knew something for sure was wrong. So I left that day for college, and... Well, that's why I kept calling you so much that first couple of months. I missed you, sure, but I was also worried about you wanted to make sure everything was okay. I kept telling myself that I was making the right call by not talking about what I'd found. It was their private lives, and if it didn't hurt us or anyone else, what did it matter? If either of us saw signs of them being weird, I could always get you out of the house and tell you about it then, but things weren't really weird. Or no more than always. 
I definitely got a new perspective on how odd our family was when compared to some of our friends at school, but then everybody thinks their family is weird, right? And when I talked to you or came home to visit, everything seemed pretty normal. Still, I noticed I was coming home less and less, and I was always tense while I was there, worried I'd see signs of something that would confirm my lingering fears that something bad was going on. And I felt guilty that I was letting my concerns about them make me grow apart from you. I didn't want that, but I didn't want to be home anymore either. That's one reason I agreed to go on this vacation. I figured it would give me more time with you, but it would also force me to spend more time with them, see them in different situations for extended periods of time, see if I had anything left to worry about, or if I just needed to let it go. That first day I was feeling pretty good about everything, but then the stuff with the blue van came up and they got really weird. Then suddenly mom isn't coming out of her room and she won't let us bother her. And no, I haven't had any luck getting a hold of her either. I know this may sound dumb, but I'm worried he may have killed her. That either they were worried about the van, or maybe he just went crazy, or... I just keep thinking about how nothing that's happening makes sense, and how I'm not sure how well we really know... Teresa! Sharon, are you in there? Sharon's eyes widened as she held a finger to her lips briefly before turning to the door. Yeah, Dad, we'll be out in just a minute. A pause, and then... Okay, honey, try to hurry if you can, and I'm parked on the right now when you come out of the store. Another pause, and then, I got a drinks and snacks. After a few seconds of silence staring at the door, I turned back to Sharon with a frown. So that guy, the one being sweet and buying us snacks, you think he's in some weird murder orgy cult or something? My sister's face darkened as she shrugged, her voice barely above a whisper. I don't know, but... I can tell you that something isn't right. I don't want it to be true, but it is. I still felt angry, but I felt afraid now, too. I didn't think she was lying to me, but it all sounded so strange and impossible. Why don't we just confront him? Get it all out in the open if you're so worried. You should be worried, too, popped into my head as I pushed the thought aside. Sharon was already shaking her head. Because if he did do something to mom, or they are a part of some... Whatever, who knows what he might do to us. We need to just stay calm, stick together, and see if anything else happens. Maybe it's all bullshit. I hope it is. I don't want to hurt dad or mom, or let them know I've been prying. Unless we really have to, but if we can't get a hold of mom the next couple of hours, or if he starts acting weird, you have to promise that you'll trust me and we'll figure out what to do next together. Okay? I nodded sullenly. Fine. But j- Sharon, it's not going to amount to shit. I paused and then added, and I still think maybe you're on drugs. She gave me a strange smile before grabbing the sides of my head and planting a kiss on the top of it. I wish. My nerves felt fried as we walked out of the bathroom together. There was a large part of me that was just angry at Sharon for making me worry unnecessarily. The idea that I was adopted? It was definitely possible, but it didn't bother me like I thought it might. Plenty of people were adopted and I didn't know it. Not exactly a big deal. Whatever else she had seen or heard, she had to be blowing it out of proportion. I didn't think she'd lie to me intentionally, but maybe she was having some anxiety or mental issues, and it was making things seem worse than they really were. 
Still, there was another smaller part of me that was afraid. What if our parents were tied up into something bad? What if Dad had done something to our mother? I'd say it was impossible, but people did fucked up shit all the time, and everyone was always surprised when it happened to them. Maybe this was the first part of a story that would end up on the news. One of those where the father kills his family and then him... No, fuck that. I, I need to keep my head straight. For me and for everyone else. I'd pay close attention and I'd take what she said seriously, but I wasn't going to believe anything unless I saw it with my own eyes. We were walking out of the store now, and maybe because I was so deep in thought, I turned the wrong way at first. Glancing around, I turned back to my right and followed Sharon to the car. It wasn't until I was getting into the back seat that I registered what I'd seen at the far end of the parking lot, sitting silently in the spot in front of the store. It was an old blue van. I could feel the van behind us as we drove deeper into the wilderness. At first, I thought it was just my imagination. I'd glance back and see the odd car in the distance, but nothing that looked like the old blue van I'd seen the day before, or again, just a few minutes earlier at the gas station. As the morning stretched on, I looked back less frequently, my mind slowly being consumed with other worries and fears crowding each other for the spotlight. Was Dad crazy? Did he hurt Mom? Did they really have some weird secret life they'd kept from us? Or was Sharon lying? Or just wrong? Maybe she had misinterpreted some things or imagined parts of it. Maybe she really did have a problem with drugs or some kind of mental issue. She seemed fine overall, but how can I be sure when she was saying such crazy things? I glanced back the breath catching in my throat as I focused on a small blue speck in the distance. Was that it? It was too far to see clearly, but I somehow knew it was. Turning back around, I thought about saying something to Dad or Sharon about it, but I held back. Sharon was back in the front seat again, and the couple of times I'd texted her since the gas station, she hadn't responded. She was actually talking to Dad some, and while on the surface it sounded like a fairly normal conversation... I could hear the tight cord of tension thrumming through every word. She was trying to see how he acted, trying to see if he said something suspicious or insane, and trying to keep him from catching on that she was doing it. I dug my fingers into my thighs until the pain made me stop. I wanted to scream at both of them, to get away from the van, to do something to make everything stop and go back to normal. I looked back again, hoping that I was wrong, that the blue speck had been something else. But no. It was much closer now, within a hundred yards and gaining. I could see the broken chrome of its grill waggling as it rushed forward, reminding me of shining teeth hungry for their next meal. I spun around, my voice loud and keen in my ears as I called out to my family. The van, it's back, it's chasing us. Dad looked up in the rearview mirror, his eyes dark as he glanced at me and then passed to our pursuer. He muttered, goddamn fuckers, and then stopped the gas, pushing me back into the seat as the SUV lunged forward. What was he doing? Did he know them? Why wasn't he calling the police? But Sharon was already ahead of me. What the fuck is going on, Dad? Do you know them? 
He glanced in her direction, his expression hard. Not now. I have to focus on this. I saw Sharon shaking her head as she spoke. No, fuck that. What's going on? What's happened to Mom? Who are these fuckers? As he went to respond, I saw the van coming up beside us. As I passed, I saw an older woman yelling something through the open window. At first, I couldn't hear what she was saying, but as she pulled even with Dad's partially opened window, I could make it out. Found you again, you bastard. Just give her back. Don't hurt her and give her back and you can go. Sharon turned to look back and as our eyes met, I felt a wave of sick fear roll through me. I thought back to what she'd told me in the bathroom about how I'd been adopted and how strange they had acted about it. About how we'd moved not long after I came home, about all the secrets they had from us. Dad? Dad? What is she t- I was interrupted by thunder. The man I called my father had rolled down his window the rest of the way and pulled a gun from under his seat. I didn't have time to consider the strangeness of seeing my father holding a gun before I was cutting off my words with a booming finality that seemed to shatter the air around me. He fired three shots into the van and I only had time to glimpse the woman shuddering from the impact before the van feared off into the far shoulder and slowed. What the fuck? What the fuck? Sharon was screaming now, but Dad ignored her. He was focused on the side view mirror, and I knew from his expression that the van was coming back again. This time I could hear the screaming of the man who was driving before the van even reached with us again. You fucker, give me back our baby, you fucker, give me back our girl. I'll fucking kill you for what you've done. Dad fired two more shots out the window, but the man in the van seemed to expect it and dropped back before slamming it to the side of our car. Cursing, Dad dropped the gun as he desperately clutched at the steering wheel and tried to maintain control. He fought the wheel for a moment, managing to keep us on the road before straightening out and picking up speed again. I glanced back and the van was coming back for a third time. That's when my father steered into the van as it passed, sending it spinning off the road and into the trees as our own car came to an uneasy stop at the edge of the shoulder. Oh God, what, what was that? Who was that? What's going on? I could hear the panic and the accusation in my voice, but I didn't care. The world had gone crazy in the past two days, and I needed it to stop. He was going to give us answers right fucking now, or I'm taking tree and we're leaving. I'll call the cops. They can come get us, and you can do whatever the fuck it is that you're planning without us. When our father turned around to look at us, his expression was strangely serene. You girls can't leave. We're on our family road trip, and we haven't reached the end of it just yet. I felt myself starting to cry, but I pushed it down. We had to make him see reason. We just... Daddy, you just killed those people. We have to call the cops, right? His smile chilled me because of how normal it seemed. It was a smile that said how he loved me, how he indulged me, how he spoiled me. I might have been asking for money for a school trip or a new computer. That smile would have been the same. No, Pumpkin. We need to keep going. We'll be safe enough soon. Sharon was undoing her seatbelt. Fuck this.
You're crazy. Teresa lets get. He shot out his arm in an instant, his expression never changing as he slammed her head against the passenger side window once, twice, three times. I saw the dark blood spreading across the spiderwebbed glass and started to scream. My panic and fear slowed me only for a few seconds, but it was enough. He was climbing back, putting his weight on top of me, keeping me from freeing my seatbelt while he pulled plastic zip ties from his khaki pants. He secured my wrist to the shoulder strap of my safety belt, my ankles to each other. I cried and begged for him to stop, but he never responded, and within a matter of moments, it was done. He opened the door and climbed off me before going back around to get in the driver's seat again. Turning, he gave me another of his warm smiles. Try to buck up, pumpkin. I know this is hard, but it'll all be over soon. Sharon didn't stir as we drove on that afternoon, and despite my continued begging and pleading, he wouldn't stop to check on her or get her help. After the first couple of hours, I'd given up any hope of her being alive. The only comfort I had was the knowledge that I probably wouldn't be far behind. But then I saw the twinkle of blue ahead of us. Not a van this time, but the rotating flash of police car lights. It was some kind of road check or something, and I knew it was our last chance to get help. I expected Dad to turn off or to roll up the window when I started screaming for help as we got near, but he never did. Instead, he pulled up casually next to the officer and greeted him. Where are you headed, sir? The officer's eyes flicked to Sharon's bloody, limp body, and then me screaming at him for help from the back seat, but his expression never changed. Dad's voice was relaxed and warm as he responded. White Creek Bridge. Gotta get there before dusk, you know? The officer nodded. You're kind of close, but this detour we've got set up should see you there in no time. My father chuckled, gesturing to the damage on the side of his SUV. Yeah, ran into an issue on the way, but I think it's smooth sailing from here. Please. Please help us. Please? I'd stopped screaming now. I could see that neither this officer or the other two that were there had any intention of helping us, that... They were clearly in on whatever was going on, but I had to try. One last effort to beg for our lives. Please. My heart fluttered with hope when the officer looked back at me and met my eyes. He seemed to waver for a moment before looking back at my father. Have a safe trip, good brother. We had turned down a side road at the police check, but while the road was curvy and less maintained than the highway had been, we still sped along as we moved deeper into the wilderness. Hurrying to get to this bridge they were talking about before dusk for whatever insane reason. I spent the next hour dejected and hopeless and largely silent aside from softly crying. I was exhausted, and while I didn't understand what was going on, not really, I knew enough to know that it was going to end badly, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. So I just sat and stared at the passing trees, thick with webs and shadows. Yet, when we rounded the last bend and the White Creek Bridge came into view, something changed in me. The wood of the bridge seemed so clean and bright that it almost seemed to glow, a sharp contrast to the small green river that ran beneath it, and the various dark shapes dotting the bridge's road, like ticks or scabs on a beast's back. We were still some distance away, but I could make out not only people, but tents and various stands. 
There was a small wood structure to one side, and what looked like a large stone table just past that on the other side. But it was what lay in the center of the bridge that finally caught and held my gaze. It was a massive bonfire. The sides of the bridge itself went up probably 20 feet long, spindly skeleton hands reaching up for the sky, and the bonfire went up nearly to the same height. It was already burning, but it was also clear that it had been lit recently, in preparation of what was to come. It was almost dusk, after all. Something broke in me at the thought. All my fear and worry and sadness seemed to burn away in the face of my anger, a bright, hungry, hopeless anger that wasn't about survival or understanding. It was simply about making them pay, making him pay. Dad had zip-tied my hands snugly, but not snugly enough. The addition of the seatbelt inside the plastic loop gave me just enough wiggle room that I was willing to hurt, to lose skin and blood. I could maybe pull myself free. I was willing. Bending down, I tucked my legs enough to put my feet against my ankles and the zip-tie binding them. I had no hope of breaking the belt or even the zip-tie, but I could break myself enough to get free. So I did. I pushed with my legs while pulling with my arms. I yelled as my right wrist gave way and skin peeled off as the plastic band dug into my flesh. But then I was free. Popping my seatbelt in my left hand, I lunged across and forward to tackle my father from behind. This all happened very quickly, and I caught him by surprise, but I knew he was too strong for me to subdue once he knew what was happening. That's why I took the moment I had to grab his seatbelt and yank it against his neck. Sliding the belt down, I hooked it at my bent elbows as I leaned back. I pushed against the back of his seat with my knees as my arms burned with his efforts to pull the belt away from his neck, and I had the errant thought that it was like riding a bull inside of a bull. He thrashed and choked as the SUV picked up speed and wove back and forth on its journey to White Creek Bridge. He almost slipped free once, but I dug in and pulled him back down. And as we began plunging through tents and people, headed into the middle of a now blazing bonfire, I saw him look up in the mirror. He found my eyes, and I found his. And I smiled. And that's what happened. The next thing I remember was being in the ambulance. They checked me out, brought me here, and then you asked to speak to me. I watched the deputy as he jotted something else down in his notebook before glancing up and nodding at me. He had been largely unreadable as I told what had happened, just occasionally nodding and taking notes as I went. I knew my story sounded incredible, but there should be plenty of evidence to support what I'd said. Either way, that wasn't the most important thing. Is Sharon... Is she alive? The deputy looked away for a moment. No, I'm sorry, Teresa, but she's been declared dead. If it's a comfort, they think she died from the head injuries well before the crash at the bridge. I wanted to cry, but I was too dried out and hollow, just a husk that needed to know, but wasn't able to really feel any of it yet. And Mom? Did you find her? Was she really all part of this too? He looked back at me and shook his head slightly. We don't have all the answers yet. She's not become located. I nodded numbly. Just then, another deputy came in with a styrofoam cup and gave it to the man interviewing me. 
The deputy glanced at me and then back at him. Everything going okay? Either of you need anything? The interviewer shook his head and then glanced at me. When I shook my head in turn, he looked back at the other deputy. No thanks, Pete. I think we're good for now. Nodding, the other deputy opened the door and started to leave. Okay. Well, I'm heading back out to the bridge. Jerry and Alex are out here if you need anything. The interviewer turned back to look at me, his face now lit with a small and secret smile. Thanks, Pete. Have a safe trip, good brother. I let out a gasp as everything around me suddenly changed. I was sitting up now instead of laying in a hospital bed, and the room was different. There was a woman that was next to me. I knew her, didn't I? Sharon? I blinked, focusing on her sad eyes as I tried pushing through the fog, filling my brain. No, Sharon wasn't right. Her name wasn't Sharon. Not really. She wasn't my sister. Not really. Her name was... Jenna? The woman smiled slightly and nodded. I went to say more, but then I realized there was someone else in the room. Another woman that I didn't know as well, but I'd met before. A woman named Swan. She grinned as I turned to face her, my heart filling with a new kind of dread. Congratulations, John. You've completed night three of the true horror movie experience. Swan's eye twitched slightly as she watched my reaction. I was surprisingly calm, although numb and in shock might be more appropriate terms. Over the last few days, my definitions of my life, the people in it, and reality in general had all been expanded and twisted to the point of ripping. I only had some remnant of sanity left because I was just trying to roll with things as they came, except that I wasn't in control and I couldn't take anything at face value. As the fog lifted from my brain, it became easier to accept that I wasn't Theresa and that Jenna wasn't my sister, Sharon. But as dread and fear pulled into the vacancies left behind by that life and identity, I found myself pinning for the simplicity of an evil father in his cult that wanted to kill me. At least that, as confusing and as terrifying as it had been, made kind of sense. But all of this... How could these people do everything they were doing with just a set of pills? It didn't seem possible, but the whys and wherefores didn't really matter either. We were trapped here. If only I could just get out of here one more time, maybe we could go far enough away that they couldn't find us. I'd take Jenna and we'd lose ourselves in the world I'd always known, in a world that was familiar and made sense. Even if that world was a lie, it was preferable to whatever this horror was. I just had to stay calm and try to figure out how we would escape. Swan had begun giggling softly under her breath. John, that's what I like about you. What I've always liked about you. You're so resilient. You may not be cut from the same cloth as your wife, but I have no doubt you will contribute for many, many years to come. I saw Jenna flinch out the corner of my eye. Swan either didn't see or chose not to react as she went on without pause. Jenna's indiscretion in giving you the Rasa pill. Well, some of us had real concerns if it would damage your progress permanently. She tipped me with a quick wink. Not me, of course. 
I always kept faith. And lo and behold, you've gone through the personal transition and regression swimmingly. I frowned, slowly shaking my head. I, uh, okay, um, can I, can, can we go now? I looked over at Jenna and she was giving me the same sad stare as before. Let's get out of here, honey, okay? I could feel the question buried in my words like a tumor. Not just the question of was she ready to leave, but did she want to? Because I had started developing a sense of something being different than before, and it wasn't just that Jenna had been a part of my latest experience, it was the feeling that she was in on a joke in a way that I wasn't. Swan let out a small snort of laughter. <laughs> you two are really cute. I can see a lot of potential here. I glanced back at her to find her expression becoming more serious again. But to answer your question, John, the answer is no. You've passed the threshold of becoming a permanent member of our little family, and I'm afraid that means you won't ever need to go home again because you're already here. Her cheek trembled as she gave me another small smile. Someone will be along to collect you shortly, but try not to worry. We will keep you in pleasant enough accommodations, and aside from your periodic adventures, you'll find your time with us much more pleasant that Jenna has no doubt described. She favored my wife with something bordering on a glare. Her position was unique. When we find one with such potential, we have to be very harsh at first, or only make things more difficult in the end. Cruel to be kind, as they say. Turning back to Jenna, I reached out and touched her arm. Jenna, what's she talking about? I want to go home. I want us both to go home. Seeing her look at me, so dejected and silent, something broke free in the chambers of my heart. They had kept her prisoner for years, torturing her. They had likely killed or imprisoned Ruby and George, too, and now they were saying we had to stay? No. I stood up, towering over Swan in her chair. Fuck that. Fuck all of this. We're going, and I'm not swallowing another goddamn pill, so if you try to stop us, I'll snap your fucking neck. The woman's expression didn't change, but oddly enough, I saw ripples of movement under her clothes, as though her body was spasming or shifting beneath the fabric. Pulling back with a shudder, I let out a yelp as a hand fell on my shoulder. It was Jenna. Let me take him to where he's staying. We can talk some, and I can try to make him understand. Looking between the two women, I could almost feel the low buzz of some invisible communication between the two of them. A small struggle of wills, borne out on some unknown battlefield. After a few moments, Swan looked away and gave a small shrug. Very well, but straight to the men's wing, you understand? She smirked at me before cutting her eyes back to Jenna. No field trips. When we left the room where I'd woken with Jenna and Swan, I felt another moment of disorientation. I'd expected to be in the office building I'd gone to with George and Ruby, but instead we walked out to an ornately dilapidated hallway that smelled of mildew and disuse. This was a different hall, perhaps even a different building, but I had little doubt that we were back at Greenheart home. Shuffling along with Jenna, I asked her if I was right, and she nodded. Yeah, this is an upper floor of the main building. The men's wing can be accessed on the floor below and three floors up, but she glanced around before whispering, We're not taking that route. 
I stopped dead, my hands clenched at my side. No, fuck this. For all I know, you're not you and this is just another trick. Either way, I'm not fucking moving until you or someone tells me what the fuck is going on. Jenna reached back and grabbed my arm, pulling me forward with surprising strength. No, not here, not now. Let's get outside and then I'll tell you what I can quickly. It's a risk to tell you anything, but maybe it'll help keep you safe or at least help you accept everything. I tried to pull away, but I couldn't break her grip. Her hand softened on my arm slightly, and when she looked at me again, I saw tears in her eyes. Please. It's me, and I'm trying to fix the little bit that I can. Just trust me this one last time. I went to respond, but I couldn't find any words. There was something so hopeless and forlorn in her voice, it broke my heart to hear it, and there was nothing I could say that would make it any better. So instead, I just nodded and... Touching her hand gently, I took it in mine as we went downstairs and out onto the overgrown midnight lawn of Greenheart Home. We'd gone out that front door, the same one Chomp and Champ had led me and Ruby through. When was that? That time seemed so muddy now. I was still worried this might be some kind of trick or that at the very least Jenna wouldn't tell me anything despite my protest. But as she led me across the shadowed grounds of the estate... I heard harsh whispers from beside me in the dark. It was Jenna, explaining more than I ever wanted to know. These things... They aren't people. I don't know what they are really, not because I don't understand them, because I think I do, but because they can be and are so many things. I know they've been around, well, either always or close to it. There have been times when people have named them or even worshipped them, but they're not gods. I, I'm doing a bad job at this, I know. I can see a lot of it now, but it's hard to put into words. People, some people in the past, have called them Anansi. They were a basis for legends and folklore about tricksters, and I suppose in a way that's true, but that's not really what they are any more than they are gods. No, what they really are is storytellers. The way they've explained it to me, the way I can see it now, is that they're weavers of reality. They inspire and create ideas and emotions through stories, and those stories are woven together to make and strengthen the very fabric of reality. That may sound very strange and grandiose, but it's also very important. There are things, very bad things, that are trying to weaken our reality all the time, trying to eat away at it, working to create holes that they can slip through. In some ways, Anansi are like a force of nature, maybe an immune system, constantly trying to fight off these influences by strengthening the structures of everything. Because their stories aren't just stories. They are the stories. The stories that all other stories spring from, the source of the funniest joke, the heart of the tenderest romance, and the staring eye of the bleakest horror. Like a mother spider filling her egg sac with hundreds of tiny pearls, those stories are all waiting to hatch to find their own ways out into the world. I, I'm 
I'm, I'm sorry, John. I know my manner is strange. I am strange now, different than what I was, but I only have these few moments with you, and I want to try and help you understand while I can. These weavers, these Anansi, they don't just dream up stories. They weave them into reality. They find places in the world, uh, abandoned places, places of forgotten power, and they spin and spin and spin their webs until they have a world within the world, a place where they can have the power of death, resurrection, immortality, and limitless change. That's how they do what they do. How you can be dead and then alive again in one place and then another. None of it is a trick. Not really. You really do burn. You really do drown. You really can become someone else entirely. It's just in their special places. They can reset and alter things as they like. Whatever the newest story calls for. They've taken over this place, and over time, they've drawn people in like flies. Most are just cattle to them. Extras, they call them. Their roles are short-lived. Others, the rarer and more resilient ones, they keep around for a long time. Use them over and over in countless stories. They're the actors. And then, well, as they are collectively... They don't live forever. And so from time to time, they find someone that is not only suitable for being an actor, but has the potential to be inured, to be prepared to become one of them. It takes years, but... This isn't the way of the men's wing, Jenna. We spun around to find Swan was standing behind us, her body half in shadow. I'd expected to feel fear at her presence, but now all I felt was anger. A rat was gnawing at my belly, whispering that what I guessed was true, that what terrified me the most, was lying around the next bend in Jenna's story. Fuck off and leave us alone. You don't own us. Swan let out a tinkling laugh at my words. Us. Which us would that be? We hand you paper masks to wear, and you are fool enough to think they are your true face. For all you know, you've already been here for hundreds or thousands of years. Jenna stepped between us. Shut up! She's lying, John. You're not fully under their control yet, and it pisses them off, because they're used to being in control, and they know you can still escape. Swan's darkened form seemed to be shifting, getting longer and bigger. The pills? It's made from their venom. It's used to make extras and actors more compliant to the weaver's form of reality. It only takes a few doses before they can alter you however they want. My mouth was dry. I had a million questions, but at the moment, only one really seemed to matter. What about what you gave me when you kissed me? Where did that pill come from? She lowered her head but wouldn't turn back to look at me. It came from me, John. It came from what I've become. I felt as though a black hole had formed at my core, pulling me down, crushing me in until all that was left was a single breathless singularity of pain. If this was true, if this wasn't another trick, another story, then they had taken Jenna's life from her. 
He had taken her away from me. Working for air, I tried to speak, to ask another question, but then I saw the thing that wore swans slowly walking towards us. It was still the same woman in some ways. I could see her short blonde hair and pale skin, and she still wore the same fashionably professional outfit as before, though it was now ripping in places as she moved. In fact, every part of her was ripping as she moved. Her skin was being pushed and stretched in unnatural directions as she lurched towards us like taffy or putty being pulled taut to the point of breaking. I had expected to see blood, but instead there was just trickles of white dust trembling with each new tear. I had the panic thought that it was like watching a wild animal trying to escape a bag. That's when I saw the first leg poking out of the woman's flesh. Long, black, and bristly, it waggled in the air for a moment before disappearing back into the woman's chest. A moment later, another leg stabbed its way out of her groin. She was still a few feet from us, but she had managed to keep moving forward during her shambling transformation, and I felt my mind shuddering at the thought of one of those dark legs reaching me. That would be it, I thought. That would be the thing that finally finished driving me insane. It was in that moment that Jenna finally turned back to look at me, her face a mask of sorrow. Go, John. Now. Keep going until you get to the last building. There's a service road behind it. Follow it until you find something you know and can trust. I'm not leaving you. I... There's no time for that. I'm... I'm like them now, but... What I gave you, you can get away. I'm strong enough that it will protect you, I think, but either way, it's your only chance. When I still hesitated, she screamed at me, her voice cracked and tearful. Please, just go. She turned back to face the swan thing that was almost to her now. And just know that if weavers dream, I'll always dream of you. With that, she grabbed a hold of the writhing thing, pushing it back into the dark as it began to yell and squeal. I wanted to go help to convince Jenna to come with me, but I knew there was no hope to be found there. Either this was a trick and she was lying, or she was telling the truth and I should trust her. Either way, I needed to try and escape this hell while I could. So I ran, tears streaming down my cheeks as I made my way closer and closer to the broken giant that lay ahead. Even in the limited moonlight, I could make out the uneven profile of its fallen-in roof as I grew near. I realized that an entire side of the building had collapsed in some long-forgotten fire. Not trusting the uneven rubble inside, I planned to go the long way until I found the road. That's when I saw twin silhouettes up ahead of me. I dove into the shadows, my heart thudding with the certainty that Chip and Chomp had seen me already. Holding my breath, I focused all my thoughts on being still, on being invisible. They didn't see me. The twins drew closer. They won't see me. I could hear their footfalls crunching dead grass underfoot. I won't be found. They were passing by, and was this actually working? Suddenly they both stopped, turning in unison to stare at my hiding spot against the broken wall. The closer one broke into a toothy grin. You trying to hide from us, sport? A moment later, a white brick wall appeared between us, spotless in the moonlight except for the single red word emblazoned across its length in ten-foot-tall letters. Run. 
I darted around the corner into the rubble of the burned-out building, fumbling my way across the dark ruin that was somehow still haunted by the smell of that past smoke and flame. I had a moment of panic desperation when I couldn't find an open door on the far side, but when I looked again, I realized there was a broken window I'd either missed before or... Wiping my face, I climbed through it and felt a surge of relief when I saw the service road Jenna had told me about. I ran for what felt like hours, and every shadow and errant sound made my heart stop, with the certainty that Swan or one of the twins or some new horror was going to leap out of the bushes or drop down from the webbed trees lining the sides of the road. But nothing ever came, and eventually the trees and the world began to seem normal again. It was after dawn before I hit a highway, and another hour before I got someone to stop and help me. The man kept asking if I needed to go out to the hospital, but I kept politely refusing his offer to just drop me off at the courthouse parking lot if it wasn't too much trouble. Sure enough, my car was there waiting, the keys lying in the seat as though left behind by a forgetful valet. It was a miracle that the car hadn't been stolen, security cameras or not, but I wasn't much in the mood to feel grateful. For all I knew, it hadn't been stolen because that wasn't the way the story was supposed to go. For now, I didn't care. I was exhausted, and all I wanted to do was go home. That was a month ago. I spent the first two weeks terrified that I'd wake up in a strange place, a strange life, a strange me. Or that the twin cops or something worse would drag me from my bed in the middle of some night. I thought about running, but if they could get me, if Jenna's, if her magic couldn't protect me, then what difference would it make if I moved to another state? Did I honestly think they couldn't find me if they wanted? So I stayed. I went over everything in my head a thousand times. Every day I almost went back out to try and find Jenna again. Every day I thought about checking myself into a hospital or killing myself. Every day I mourned losing my family, my friends, my life. And it would be a lie to say if it has gotten any easier, but it has become more predictable. Routine has worn the rough edges of most of my fear and loneliness, making it something I can live with, if just barely. But the thing that I couldn't live with was worrying about what might have happened to Jenna. Even if she had become like the things that she described, how would they react to her helping me escape? What if they killed her or were torturing her? I had no way to know or find out other than seeking them out again, and the idea of that terrified me. I hated the worry and guilt, but I told myself that if I went back, I'd just be throwing away all that Jin had sacrificed to free me. It was probably true, but that didn't stop me from hating myself. Jinnah had been the best part of me, and now she was gone. I'd... I'd abandoned her. My grief made me strange in the following days. I'd gone down to the owl's computer, and after some poking around more on instinct than clear memory, I found a folder with a handful of saved videos inside. It was the nights I had watched of Chomp and Chip taking away Jenna. I hated seeing these videos. The sights of the twins pulling her away again and again was almost more than I could bear, but at least I got to see her. And if it hurt, well... I guess it was no more than what I deserved. 
As the days went on, I took to watching the clips over and over for hours until I'd finally fall asleep. Two nights ago, I woke up just past midnight, my neck painful from sleeping crooked in the old computer chair. The video player had finally given up without any user input and had gone back to showing the live feed from the backyard owl. The yard was dark and still, and I was too tired, too broken to watch anymore. I was reaching to turn off the monitor when I froze. There was one large shadow moving amongst the others. The dark shape of a spider. It moved slowly across the yard toward the house, easing up to a window and looking in. After a few moments, it moved to another window, another room, as though it was looking for something or someone. I should have been terrified, and my heart was pounding in my chest as I ran upstairs, but it was beating with an odd strain of excitement and joy. Jenna? Jenna? I looked out the windows. I'd seen it at last, but saw... Nothing but my own reflection. Running to the door, I threw it open before calling out again into the night. Jenna, I'm here! I'm here! I thought I glimpsed movement out the corner of my eye, but when I turned and looked, it was gone. Frantic, I searched the outside of the house and then the inside. Finally, thinking maybe I'd scared her away, I went back down to the basement and the video feed. I sat there for hours, but there was nothing. She was gone. Jenna told me once that the only real problem people had was that they liked misery. They hungered for violence, they lived off conflict, and if they ever found a reason to be happy, they'd work until they'd ruined it somehow. She said that if people could just appreciate all the good things, focus on the things that really mattered, most of their problems would be a lot lighter. I laughed and told her that if people started focusing on the things that really mattered, they wouldn't really be people anymore. My Jenna was the best person I've ever known, that I will ever know. She had this strength, this light about her that just made you feel better. I miss her so fucking much. And I, every day, wonder how I'll continue now that she's gone, but somehow I will. Not for me, but for her, because I know she's out there somewhere, and I want her to see that knowing her, loving her, has made me better and stronger too. I don't fully understand what Jenna is now how her and those like her do what they do, but there's one thing I know for sure. Whatever stories she weaves will be good ones, with light and joy to balance the dark times as they always come. And just like her, they'll make the world a better place, just by being in it.